Hey, Richard. What? Knock, knock. Who's there? Wait, no, this is wrong. You go knock, knock. Knock, knock. Who's there? Come on. Come on who? Come on in. We've got candy. Wait, don't you have any beer? Are you over 18? Do I have to card you again? No, of course I'm not over 18, but I am the wisdom of a much older man. <laughs> and the body. The wisdom teeth of one. And anyway. the body and the decay and uh, the need for beer. Okay, you can have beer. Yay! Welcome to Digital Noise. Ah, ah, ah. Hey, up. <laughs> it's Richard and Chris's week, and we are bringing you the episode that is filled with really a shit ton of different types of stuff. Yeah. There's no real theme that's discernible this week of, like, type of thing. It's, like, across the board, like, wow, what's missing here? I can't think of anything. It, yeah, like, earlier in the month, it was all they were obviously dumping a lot of Halloween titles, and mm -hmm. now it's, like... Ah, uh, let's put out some, like, weird, interesting stuff. I think that's the unifying thing. There's a lot of weird, interesting stuff here. Yes, that we do have some horror, but there's also, like, like old classic westerns and, like, mystery th thrillers in the 30s and indie comedies from Germany and science fiction films and Orson Welles pictures, and it's a weird week. It's a very strange week. But uh, I see no reason to stand on ceremony, mainly because ceremony keeps going, hey, what the hell are you doing standing on me? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, come on. You, I'm short. What do you want? Um, I'm not. <laughs> so let's He's go. He's a tiny wee man. He's a tiny. Oh. Tiny. Hello, I'm Chris. <laughs> that was <laughs> disturbing at so many levels. Chris Thumb. I was just disturbing mainly at low levels. <laughs> Be nice to me or you're going to end up a chicken. Oh, what? <laughs> like in Freaks. Ah. Oh, yeah. One, one of us. One, one of us. But anyway, I don't have, we're not doing questions this week, mainly because we're recording so late at night. So uh, we are just going to jump right in to the titles this week. And we're going to start off with one of the films that I really think, uh, it's hard. There's a lot of stuff I love this week. And if it wasn't for one other package, this would have been my pick of the week, which is a, a Scandinavian film called LFO. Don't run away. Come back. No, come back. Come back. Because this is like, if you've, if you've seen anything at the Alamo recently, you might have seen a trailer for this, which is a very like, what the fuck is this movie about type of trailer. Um, and it's so odd. There's It's sci-fi with tinges of horror, I guess, yeah. in the sense that it's kind of disturbing and creepy. It's, it's but psychological not in, horror. Yeah, not in, a, not in any way that you're, that, that me saying that you are Con, uh, connecting with right yeah. now. The idea is is that this guy, he's kind of a he's really a loser, uh, sits in his house toying with his elaborate sound system he's got, like 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 messing with like the the tiniest little ambiances and noise. I mean, that's his obsession, that's his hobby. It's no different than a guy playing with his giant train set, except for this guy, it's sound. And his wife is is like, you know this is all you care about. You don't even care about me anymore. He's kind of like, leave me alone. When he stumbles upon this frequency that when people hear it makes them a, a hundred percent suggestible and, and paralyzed basically when they hear it. So basically the power of God 
as long as you can set people up to hear this frequency. Yeah, and you have to remember to wear he- headphones. So he just basically sits around his house with his stereo system, uh, his MIDI st- his MIDI system, a remote control, and a pair of headphones waiting for his neighbours to turn up so that he can do really horrible manipulative things to them. Oh, and, he's, and he convinces himself that it's all in the name of science. Yeah. That he's got a Nobel Prize in his future and that this is going to be amazing. But the truth is, he's a twisted fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Which and- becomes fairly apparent when he starts to, you know, go, telling the female neighbour, oh, yes, you really want to sleep with me. <laughs> right. Although- and that is actually pretty much the least worst thing he does. Because, And not in that, like, that's a trivial thing. It gets so much darker and weirder. And he's this schlubby guy. If you, if you did an American remake of this, you'd get Paul Giamatti to play this guy. Right. And it's, even though this movie is funny at points, it's not played up for laughs. You know, it's not like, it doesn't devolve into a goofy comedy at any point. It's more than anything sci-fi. Yeah. Especially when you see where it goes by the end, which is yeah. like kind of haunting. <laughs> yeah. The ending is, is you, you kind of wonder where, where it can possibly go. And there's a point about two thirds of the way through where there's no way this can end well for, for anyone concerned. And it, it definitely, you know, it's, it's a very imaginative ending. Uh, this is... It's the first truly good mad scientist film we've seen in I don't even know how long. Yeah. <laughs> Since Tusk? <laughs> oh, please, don't yeah. do that. Um, no, I mean, this this reminds me, uh, you know, in kind of the, the sense of manipulation and weirdness, it reminds me of Borgman, uh, in the kind of something truly innovative about the nature of science fiction. It reminds me of a little film that came out uh, earlier this year called Frequencies, uh, which have this same question of questions of free will uh, and manipulation. Um, this is, yeah, I mean, this is not an easy watch in in many ways, but it is absolutely enthralling. Yeah, this idea, and it really is. It's set in this one house, yeah. and it's basically him, his him manipulating his neighbors and his wife and his son, his teen son appearing and giving him flack and going, "Why are you doing this? This is this is you know evil and wrong of you." Um, and nothing is quite what it seems. No, way. it is. It is. You know, uh, it's a great script. It's yeah. It, that's the thing. It's such a clever script, and I really like when it gets to this point that these people are so under his control that he doesn't even need the sound anymore. They've just become completely Pavlovian controlled to the point they're like, whatever he says, they know he is their God. And he, they just do with the, they can have a full on discussion with him normally, but ultimately when he says this is how it's going to be, that's the end of the story and they'll yeah. do it. As when he tells the husband, uh, it's like, oh my God, why don't you go die? And he goes, well, okay. And lays down and there's a pause and he goes, dude, are you not breathing? Okay, start breathing again. And he just, it's, <laughs> you're like, yeah, I, I, this is is one of the most interesting, you know, interesting in a good way. Films. It's not like, oh, it's so interesting. It's like this is is one that you, I think you. It's rare that I can say, hey, something, you know, a subtitled sealed room drama from from Scandinavia. You're going to want to watch this several times. But you know, if you watch this the first time and you're into it, you will want to go back and watch it again because you know it, there's a lot of development of you know, character development that you're really going to go. When did that? that switch get flicked. And I think it's it's really powerful. It won Best Feature Film at a lot of different festivals. It got nominated for it and other things. I mean, it's been really well-received as a truly great little movie. Um, as well, it was only shot in 10 days, which is really surprising considering how strong the performances are here. Yeah. But yes, 
highly, highly recommended LFO. Such good stuff. Make a point of checking this thing out. While we're dealing with a, a dystopian science fiction, Yay. let's go ahead and talk about The Purge 2, otherwise known as The Purge Anarchy. Well, that's good. Start singing this x or something. No. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> So I think we can all safely presume that that uh, our, our listeners have uh, have seen the purge, which was a you know Bloomhouse Rackham Stackham. What's Ethan Hawke doing this afternoon? Production. <laughs> well, better than it should have been. Well, let's think. Yeah. It was a sealed a sealed house drama. Which, if you don't know the basic idea, is that in this dystopian future, everything it's not actually that dystopian. It's actually quite lovely because for one night every year, you are allowed to commit any crime that you want. Yeah, that day. Well, wait. You mean that's the lovely part? No. Okay, I thought you were saying that's the lovely part. The way you're saying it. No, like, no, 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 it's no. great. The one day a year you get to kill everyone and rape them and everything. It's wonderful. It's just like LFO, except you get to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, you're like the rest of the time, yeah, it's utopia. And then that one, because the, the idea is because you get one day a year, do whatever the fuck you want, that that cleanses people of the need to commit other crimes, which is a naive at best <laughs> futurist look at the world. Well, but, but there was this it, there was this minor implication that wasn't really it wasn't really brought out in the first film because it, it basically dealt with this one family on purge night with this one set of home invaders and this one guy they're trying to get, and you get this implication that. There's really kind of a, a social control mechanism. This is kind of Logan's Run-esque of like, let's take what, you know, it's supposed to be one night for everybody, but really you can go kill the poor. Um, well, see, and this the, is basically a rich person's toy. And that's what this film is really about. That's the thing is like the best thing about the first film is the subtext. Like it's a very interesting subtext to it. And it says some very dark, fucked up stuff, but you don't really see much that you haven't seen in another home invasion film, ultimately on film. It's, it's very competent for what it does. Nothing inherently wrong with it, except it seems to promise more than it ever delivers. This is the film that delivers on the promise of yeah. what you wanted to see in the first purge, which is let's go out and the rest of the city and see what the fuck is going on yeah uh and they say anarchy yeah it it's pretty much anarchy yeah. out there um but you saw this more recently than i did so go ahead yeah and i mean basically it starts with this uh you know the, this mother and daughter who work in a diner and they're trying to get home and they, they get home but even that's no defense against the purge and this nice couple who are just trying to get home and their car breaks down in the middle of the city and they're like Oh shit! No, and they, and it's this whole thing of like they get together uh, with this other guy called the Sarge, who is, is off on his own version of the purge. He's not randomly killing people. He has a mission, and yeah. you can tell there's something dark. He in his looks. He is the Punisher. Yeah, I mean, you're watching him. You're like, I remember everybody coming out of this like that dude. He's the Punisher. And it's Frank Grillo, who should be playing the Punisher anyway. Yes. <laughs> Although, unfortunately, he's crossbones now, so he's not going to be eh. the Punisher. But I'm telling you, you watch this movie, like, yeah, this is the, this is an alternate, like, first mission out for the Punisher is what this is. Yeah, and <laughs> you get this real, you know, they are basically trying to survive the fact that this is just carnage on the streets. Mm. And there's, you know, small random gangs who are wandering around just taking advantage of the night. Uh, with machetes or whatever they can find. But then there's really organized people who basically got private armies and a minigun in the back of a truck, and it's they're the been... rich people, and you get the, and you, you can see, like, how people would respond. It's like you yeah. give them the moment for the, their darkest instincts to take over, and this is what they will do. I mean, and it's pretty bleak. It's wild in the streets. Run yeah. it, run it, 
Wild in the streets. Run it. Run it. Oh, I thought you were about to go with Bon Jovi. <laughs> no, I was quoting the Circle Jerks. Fuck Bon Jovi. Nah. Um, I, as much as like the stuff you're seeing early on is disturbing, the idea of these people just randomly shooting and killing people for fun, it's not till you take catch of the circumstances that everything seems to be perfectly normal and under control that the movie really starts to get under your skin. Yeah. And there's a sequence where they go to supposedly a safe house and watching everything disintegrate there with like people who've been family their whole lives is kind of haunting yeah um as well as where we end up by the end of this film which is is getting well into like building a mythology for future films to come yeah uh there's kind of a surprise it's not a twist but a surprise at where it goes at towards the end of this that was really interesting and, and the characters are even for a horror movie like this we even know enough about them to actually care about them yeah I mean, in some ways, it reminded me of, and there's some people who are going to get, go, you're going to make that comparison, they're terrible. It reminded <laughs> me of the Saw movies, because you really felt there's a mythology and a world that's being constructed that isn't dependent on individual characters, and that you could lose everybody that's involved in the first few films, but the the concept will go on, because the concept of The Purge is so strong and what it says about people. And it's wrapped up in this $9 million, you know, kind of gory action film. Yeah. But, you know, you'd like it, this punch is way above its weight on every single level. And like you said, everything that the first film kind of promised but really didn't have the money or the time to deliver... This one absolutely gets to do. It really feels like they they sat there, you know, the directors sat uh, in the back of some screenings, and everybody because everybody came out and went, you know, it was really good, but I really like to know what the rest of the world was like, and they went done and done. Uh, yeah, I know that's what everybody said walking out of this, and they were like, oh, that first movie made so much money, we can pay for this alone just off the profits of the first one, which yeah. cost almost nothing to make. Well, this was this was still this cheap was also well. this cheap. Was sub, this was the the classic Bloomhouse sub ten million. That's the they thing. Do, they, I think if they ever spend more than ten million, I think the you know Jason Bloom's heart would explode. He's kind of the new Roger Corman. Yeah, you know. He brings good people into this. He's gotten a lot of good, good people their start. Uh, he makes more good movies than he doesn't, although he certainly makes some stinkers, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <sighs> but Insidious. Uh, you don't like Insidious? I, I, I hate the Insidious oh, films. Oh, God, I love Tip the first one. through all the fucking tulips. No, go fuck yourself. I love the first movie. Oh, well. The second one's not as great. But We're going to change like light bulbs, and now it's evil. Shut no, up. I like it. It's like watching. It's like somebody took an old-school haunted house and made it into a horror movie. I love it. Yeah, but I like old-school haunted houses, and I'd rather be in one rather than watch that. Yeah, yeah. Well. A difference of but opinion. this, this I would genuinely, uh, you know, I. This is enjoy. one of the best things ever to come out of Blumhouse Studios. Yeah. It's next to The Conjuring. Yeah, it's right up there. Nobody went to see this because people came out of the Purge on the whole, going, "It was okay, but you know, it didn't deliver on what it was promising to deliver on." And like I said, this is the movie you thought you were getting. Well, so it made, it made ten it. times his budget on domestic, so I think Jason Bloom is uh, is he's proving fine. that he's doing okay. He's he fine. ain't suffering. Uh, this um, comes with nine minutes on Behind the Anarchy, which is looking at, you know, just your normal featurette making of. There's eight minutes of deleted scenes, and that's about it. But um, still, this is worth owning. It's got a very John Carpenter-ish feel to it. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, if you like movies like Escape from New York and that sort of thing, you're going to like this, too. Also, Tinges of the Warriors. Of what? T tinges of Walt Hill. Warriors, yeah, well. yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we'll move on to something, unfortunately, you did not get a chance to see, which is a shame because I really wanted to discuss this one with you. Uh, this is a South Korean... Sorry, I had to sleep. I know, right? I what's, know. Up, what's wrong with you? I'm so weak. I expected so much more of you, Richard. <gasps> I will hang my head in shame. I thought you British people didn't need to sleep. No, we just need tea. You're not technically human, right? No. You're more robotic. 
You live off tea and limes. Yes. <laughs> and and terrible satire. And terrible food. Yes. <laughs> if you can boil it, we'll eat it. <laughs> you don't boil pizza. <laughs> we do. Um, we deep fry it. You don't actually boil pizza, do you? We we deep fry it. Oh, that's not right. Don't I'm do that. Go, go to Edinburgh sometime. You can get battered deep fried pizza. Don't do that. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's funny. I was it's actually... delightful with uh, with brown sauce. I know we just started in this review, but I just got to quote uh, Dan Harmon from Harmontown. I was listening to him today, and he was talking about, like, Scotland is so tiny. How did you get all these accents? My theory is the big fucking mountains that are, the hills are everywhere. Everyone's like, okay, well, I'm going to go over this hill. I'll be back in a little bit. And then there's, like, terrible weather. And you're like, I'm not going back over that hill. Fuck that. And then the next thing you know... You're like, you come back like two years later and you're just like talking on, you're so pissed off that you've been trapped over there. You went from, oh, hi, how are you doing? To, oh, well done, some better done. That's, that's a pretty, pretty accurate linguistic analysis and your there, family Dan. Back well, is like, congratulations. Your family back home's like, what the fuck did you say? Yeah, it's, it's a very angry dialect. <laughs> I'll say that much. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that has nothing to do with South Korea, which is where... Oh, yeah, no, uh, Korean sounds pretty angry. Uh, true. It's not the world's most romantic-sounding language. No, no. Uh, th- that's probably still French. But uh, Kundo, Age of the Rampant, is set in mid-19th century Korea, and it is a very kind of a a Robin Hood and his Merry Men type of story on one level, and on another level, it's actually, it's got like a super villain type of character in it. You know, like this guy who was, uh, he, he, when he was a kid, he was a good enough kid. His dad was a rich guy who just kind of dropped him off in the whorehouse where he was, where his mom was a whore. But As then, you do. But then at one point decided he wanted to buy him back because he, his wife hadn't given him any sons. So he's like, all right, I'll take him back. It's real nice to him for a few years until his wife actually did get pregnant with a son. And then he's like, you know what? Go fucking hide in the corner because you're the bastard. So he grew up to be a real son of a bitch. The evil son of a bitch, but well-trained one who murdered his his brother, so he would become the sole person, and then like just turned into this like the worst, most exaggeratedly evil piece of shit that you could imagine. Who can also please like, say he has a mustache to twirl? No, he doesn't. He's actually very handsome. Oh. Which, as we all know, no one with a mustache is. Yeah, <laughs> yours is coming in. Oh God damn it! I was counting me. Why don't I <laughs> but um, th- there's, of course, a band of like fighters that like set up with sort of cons where they enter situations and then rip off the rich and give everything to the poor. that are like fighters, you know, for the poor. We give everything back to them. And they've got this whole organized thing on the mountains. Uh, and you've got this guy. There's, there's a lot of characters in this. This other guy is like a poor butcher who had, apparently at this time in Korea were considered to be the lowest of the low like cast. Like if you were a butcher, that was like about the worst thing you could be. I don't know why, but in this case, you're thinking like it would be like, oh, that's a pretty good job. But no, no, they're looked at as pieces of shit. And um, he gets into a situation where he strikes a deal like reluctantly because he doesn't know he, he doesn't think he can say no with this evil warlord guy to like murder this girl. When he gets there, he can't do it. And he comes back and he's like, yeah, he's like, uh, she wasn't there. <laughs> they must have moved her. And they try to kill him and kill his wife and, and, and daughter, but not him. And he's broken, wandering in the world, ends up with the bandits and flash forward to a little bit late, two years later, which is all the time it takes in movies to become a master fucking like badass at martial arts, as we all know. Ah, uh, I mean, on the, show, me. on the show Arrow, it's six months for yeah. the record. <laughs> you know, on an island by yourself. <laughs> no, no, no. He at least got look, five years. Like they're like the, the, the one character uh, who plays Red Arrow is like 
it, it's like two weeks as near as I can tell from going, I can't hit anything to an arrow to, I can do flips in the air and hit like seven things at once. <laughs> You're like, okay. Uh, anyway, but the, 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 this guy becomes Kondo, who's kind of the baddest ass of the baddest ass of this group of guys. And, you know, he's going on the missions, but when it comes up against this one dude, the dude who killed his wife and daughter, he's like, he has to deal with like, oh, my new training and my loyalty to these guys and our mission and revenge. And what sets this apart from a lot of other films that have similar themes, we reviewed one a lot like this not that long ago with a similar plot from Hong Kong, is that they really are influenced by Sergio Leone and Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Like really influenced. The soundtrack especially is so remarkable in that it all has this like, ha, Western theme going on mm-hmm. the whole time, like sort of like neo-modern Western sound to it. Uh, and a lot of the action is very sort of like something out of Kill Bill, like very, it has that feel and look to it. And everybody cusses constantly through the whole thing, which is really weird. You're fucking for, kidding. For an Asian film, there are like all these, this period piece and they're all going, Hey, fuck you, cocksucker. You're like, what? <laughs> Did somebody steal, steal the, the, the script from Deadwood? I, it's just very odd. It's very off putting. And honestly, it's much more fun than it's not at its weakest. It gets to a point where it wants you towards the end to have a little bit of sympathy for the main villain, and you're like, it is too little too late, my friends. There is no point. You've asked us to hate him for two hours, and we ain't coming back from that. No, 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 no. Too late. Let's just make this guy die painfully on screen now. Thank you very much. But I do recommend this. This is one of the more interesting of the period piece Korean films I've come across who aren't generally known for period piece movies. I mean, certainly not what I would call their strength. Their strength is really twisted and sick modern day sort of horror thrillers. Which they do so well and makes you very alarmed about the the state of play uh, in Korea at the moment. Makes me go like... If I was North Korea, I would not fuck with them at all. Oh, uh, maybe, yeah, that's the thing. Maybe that's why North Korea's building the nukes. You're like, what you fucking... Uh, did you see Mobius? <laughs> really? Did you watch the Vengeance trilogy? Oh, my King God. of Pigs! Oh, my God! <laughs> These people have problems. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I still recommend Kundo. It is a lot of fun. Uh, and, I mean, maybe a little overlong. A lot of the period... When you say period piece, it's like... It's going to be over two hours. Why is that? Why can nobody bring a historical movie? I think the only historical movie I can remember in recent years that actually managed to come in at a decent length was like Ironclad. And God, which probably needed like another half hour because it really felt like it had been edited help, with a with a wooden wooden block. And God help you if you don't actually like this sort of thing and have to watch some of them. At least, you know, if you're watching John Woo's Red Cliff, which is like five hours long, yeah. At least it's really good. I'll hand it that. Like I was like, oh God, here we go. Woo hasn't done anything good in so long, and then it's like, oh my God, this is one of the best things he's ever done. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> he got Broken Arrow out of his system. <laughs> I kind of like Broken Arrow. Well, so do I, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's really dopey as all shite. Well, I mean, I, when I think of the worst of him, I think of Mission Impossible 2. Ooh. Yeah, I don't know if I could ever sit through that. Don't again. remind me of the Mission Impossible films. Please. They all make my blood crawl. I need to uh, uh, purge that from me by talking about something uh, that I really did love, which is Snowpiercer. Yay! Talking yeah. Korea again. Yeah, Korea again. Uh, South Korea, of course, because North Korea is not really making a lot of films. So well, they are, but nobody Korea. sees them. They're just, they're just on Kim Jong-il's private cinema collection all the time. Here's our leader. Uh, 
Uh, yeah, a bunch of basketball players have seen them. That's about it. Um, <laughs> this is based on a French graphic novel, and I, I've never read it, so I can't say the degree to which it's close. Although there very is, loosely, there is a special feature on, very, on basically the, the concept of the train. Okay, that's pretty much it. Yeah, there's um, a there's a thing uh, specifically about that on the. Uh, there's a lot of extra features on this disc. So if you like this movie, wow, do they make it worth your your while to get this? But um, it's written by Bong Joon Ho, who has become to uh, you know English speakers really kind of a defining voice in Korean cinema right now with movies like uh, The Host and Memories of Murder. And Snowpiercer is odd in that it's got. Uh, almost completely English cast. It's almost completely in English. Yeah. Uh, 80% of it was shot in English. And yet it's still got that. It's, it, it resembles something Terry Gilliam would do more than anything else. Yeah. Um, uh, and I would actually say it's, it's like Terry Gilliam. And, you know, Bong Joon-ho has, has said, you know, he's very much inspired by Gilliam, but it's Gilliam with a level, level of control that Gilliam has never had. Right. right. That's the real difference here. And I, you know, in some ways, I think this is the kind of film that Terry Gilliam has been trying to make. Uh, it also doesn't have that horrible sound mix that Gilliam likes, where he where he completely drowns the dialogue out uh, with sound effects. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, this is going to upset a few people, which seems I, to be I love my Ter- purpose tonight. Uh, I, I mean, love, I love Terry Gilliam, Gilliam, but I, but-, I, but this is take Gilliam's ideas and Gilliam's concepts and put them in the hand of a master craftsman director, and you get Snowpiercer. This is a film that knows exactly where it's going. It is on the rails the whole way. Oh. What? what? Oh, yeah, because it's a train. Oh, yeah, okay. I see what you did there. No, it wasn't mm. me. It was really? Monkey. <laughs> he puts thoughts in my head. Stop playing that sound tone, Monkey. <laughs> uh, that was a callback to an earlier film. Nice. It was nice work. Uh, go ahead and talk about the plot for this one. Well, for those the basic who have idea no is idea. that there is a. The, the world has frozen over uh, after a failed attempt to deal with global warming. Oh my god, Wendy Davis got elected. Hey! <laughs> people are going to be listening to this next week and go, that's ah, not too soon. Um, I think people will be listening to it as soon as it goes online and go, too soon. Um, but yeah, the failed attempt to. Uh, uh, end global warming and instead they freeze the entire planet and all that has been left is this train that was designed by a maniac yeah. which is going around the entirety of the earth sort of once a, a future year. Howard Hughes yeah. <laughs> uh, and he is at the front of the train and the poor people are at the back yeah the very very richest guy is at the point nose of the train and the very very poorest people are in the rear and it is a, the, it is the further you get up the train and the closer to the to the engine and the leader um as Tilda Swinton keeps referring to him. The leader. The leader. Um, Tilda Swinton, who does a fabulous, horrible North of, North of England accent. And has the the best, worst fake teeth ever. Amazing. Um, the, you know... The, I mean, this is a clearly, you know, clear political metaphor for a stratified society. It's not say, subtle about it's that. It's not a train, it's a metaphor. <laughs> um, and you've got Chris Evans at the back... <laughs> yeah, straight after doing Captain America Winter Soldier, he goes off and does this, where he plays a guy who is, you know, being pushed to lead a rebellion and get to the front of the train. But he not really even knowing what they're going to get when they get there. Yeah, he really doesn't want to lead. He feels that he's not fit to lead. And as the film goes on, you find out why he feels he is not fit to lead. But basically, they start this this rebellion that's heading up the train, and you very quickly realize the middle classes are going to keep the working class down. It's not about the people at the front doing it, because they know that the middle class is like, 
nope, 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 nope. We're going to keep the scum at the back in their place. Right. And it gets pretty brutal in, in place. And that's part of, you know, part of the many things this film does extraordinarily well. The action sequences, very Korean, mostly no firearms. Instead, yes, it's Korean axes because they love their axes and their hammers in, in, uh, in that culture. Yes, they do. Uh, and there's some incredible fight sequences, including some uh, done solely with um, night vision goggles and kind of firelight that just are mind-blowingly beautiful and shot in a, in a tiny enclosed environment. They basically just built the garages and did this. But put aside the action sequences um, and the, the fighting, and this is a brilliantly scripted film. Yeah, with I, Chris Evans as kind of the the reluctant rebel, Tilda Swinton just chewing the scenery, but not seeming like a, a cartoon or pasty. She is a, her character is basically the person who has crawled up to near power, and she's going to hang on forever. Yeah, um, and she has this wonderful opening speech where she explains why exactly people are supposed to keep their place, uh, and she it, it involves a shoe, and it is. <laughs> Funny and ridiculous, but at the same time grotesque uh, and deeply disturbing. Um, and it works so well. I think this this is a film that could have just been a terrible, terrible idea. Oh yeah. But instead, it is. A, this is the closest thing I think we have this year to a full bore in the canon masterpiece. It is pretty great. I don't know if I'm going to go so far as say masterpiece. Yeah, you're wrong. I think that... <laughs> I've done that. I did that to you already. This you show, did, so, so fair, fair enough. enough. <laughs> um, it, I think it suffers to some extent that it right, it leads the audiences in the beginning watching it to feel like this is going to be a much more meant-to-be-taken-100%-seriously film than it is. It's not meant to be taken 100% seriously. This film has got its tongue firmly planted in its cheek all the way through, which is the main reason why I say, please watch this like you're expecting it to be a Terry Gilliam film, because it is absurd. It is implausible. This could not happen this way. It's not supposed to make you think that it could happen this way. You know, it's a, it is based on a comic book and it feels like a comic book. It's a really fun, cool, smart, comic book adaptation that takes you places you never would have imagined it was going. It says things about society that you couldn't have done another way than this, yeah. you know, and made it as effective and make you have a good time along the way. It's, it actually makes a very good per pairing with the Purge Anarchy. It does, indeed. It's so another one, think, another yeah, film you, like that. You won't be too enthusiastic about people by the time you've watched this no. particular double bill, but they they actually fit together surprisingly clearly. Uh, and lots of good performances all the way through this. John Hurt plays a sort of like, you know, father figure to Chris Pine. Um, you've got, uh, uh, Jamie Bell is sort of like, or Chris Evans, sorry. Jamie Bell is sort of a sidekick type character to him. Uh, you mentioned Tilda Swinton, who is absolutely unforgettable in this film. Yeah. Uh, Olivia, Octavia Spencer is another rebel in this group who's very funny. Uh, lots of very small. Ewan Bremner as well. Ewan Bremner, who, who really, you know, has not had much of an opportunity to do much quite as memorable as this since train spotting, but yeah. you know, his, uh, something very horrible happens to him very early on and pretty much pretty clearly drives him insane. And Ewan Bremner goes, Oh, I get to be crazy in a film full of crazy people. 
Oh, <laughs> hang on to the Nutball Express, because here we go. Uh, as well as Alison Pill has a small role in here that was one of, I think, the best scene in the entire freaking movie. Um, uh, there are several, if you watch a lot of Korean actors, uh, Korean movies as well, you'll recognize Song Kang-ho and Go Ah-sung, who've both been in a lot of other stuff. And, and both been in uh, other uh, Bong Joon-ho movies Indeed. as well. So. Uh, they're both in The Host, aren't yep. they? Terrific stuff. And if you haven't seen it already, you don't know. Like I said, this has got like just a ton of bonus features. There's a big audio commentary with it's hosted by our buddy Scott Weinberg from Geek Nation. I don't know why. Hey, I'm Scott. I don't know how he gets these deals, but um, also with James Rocky, who's also been a contributor to OneOfUs.net, with William Goss, who has been a contributor to OneOfUs.net, with HitFlix.com's Drew McWeeny, who has not been a contributor to OneOfUs.net, but he's a really solid dude. Uh, Jennifer Yamato from Deadline, who I don't know personally, so I can't say one way or the other, and Peter S. Hall, who has been a contributor to OneOfUs.net. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, uh, tentacles get everywhere. Hail Hydra! I was like, did they record this after we saw it? They were all there. I think actually the structure was that the, uh, Weinberg calls them up in order. They're not all in the same place at the same time. He calls them up to talk about different bits of the film. Fair enough. Skype? Uh, there's a full-on document, 54-minute documentary on here called Transparenage from the blank page to the blank screen, uh, which once again is a history of the source material. There is a 15-minute, uh, more or less featurette on the birth of, uh, of, of this, this version of the Snowpiercer. There's a 13-minute look at the characters, a animated prologue that, uh, that takes a look at some stuff that we only see mentioned but doesn't actually happen on screen in the film. There is a, a piece with Chris Evans and Tilda Swinton talking about Snowpiercer. There is a, uh, a thing called The Train Brought to Life, behind the scenes of the special screening that's eight minutes long, that's a look at the show that Richard and I were, we're at, at when they showed this at a rolling we'll road show. we have to show. watch it and see whether our ugly heads Let's are in there anyway. We were right at the front. It's possible. I, weirdly, I think I, I actually watched a documentary this week uh, called The Texas Promise about uh, the... Uh, when they slashed all the money out of the Texas budget. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure the back of my head is in there at least once. So it's always a weird experience. We're like, oh, crap. Yeah. Well, how's my hair looking today? It's funny, though. One site I'm, like, looking at to get sort of, like, just have this list in front of me uh, says, also included is Tom League's interview. It's like, oh, it's Tim. Tim. <laughs> the owner of the Alamo. Mm, Timbles. Uh, which is a very short interview, all things considered, if I remember correctly. I think he was drunk. He, well, yeah. I think he was drunk and we needed to get home because the train was going. We were, the train was, they brought us out there on a train, train. And the train people were like, we're not waiting around for your drunk asses. You're not <laughs> on this train. We're going. And so by the time it was over, they're like, run, run, run to, to the, the train. train. Or we're all walking back <laughs> exactly. to Exactly. We're like, oh, fuck. Anyway, great stuff. Another film like this is one of the ones that it's hard not to call the pick of the week. But I can't Very tough. do it. I can't Very tough. quite call this my pick of the week. Oh, that hurts. Uh, it really does. Yeah, it's a solid week. I was say, we got, we, uh, hang on, folks, we've got plenty more good stuff to come. Uh, uh, I'm going to go somewhere here briefly that, uh, like, you didn't see once again, which is The Death Kiss. I suck so hard. What is wrong with me this week? I know. Oh, right? yes, I remember. There's, there's, there's something coming up that, that took a few hours to get through. And what was that? Oh, we'll get there. Oh, I see. All right, well, this is a 1932 a mystery film. Uh, starring Bela Lugosi. Well, okay, let's be honest. This is called The Death Kiss. It's the movie they made after Bela Lugosi and Dracula. Universal put a lot of promotion and press into this. Look, it's Bela Lugosi with two of the other stars from Dracula as well. 
Drought clear. Oh my god, how can this not be a hit? Well, you didn't really put much effort into it, that's how. Mm-hmm. And but Lugosi has maybe five minutes total of screen time in the film. It is a really, this is in the public domain already because who really would have bothered to keep renew the copyright? It's not that it's terrible for its time. It was, I'm sure it was viewed as like, yeah, it's all right at its time, you know? It's like one of the lesser, you know, it's it, it's like your lesser, lesser Tony Scott film. You're like, Ooh, you're like oh, well, it's okay. Are you saying this is the domino of its time? Okay, not as bad as that. Oh. <laughs> Okay, uh, almost like like a second tier Tony Scott film of its time. Like, who is going to remember, you know, uh, uh, his remake of uh, uh, what was it, uh, the train one, um, a witch train one? Yeah. <laughs> Aren't they all train ones? Are you sure he didn't direct Snowpiercer? Feels like. It. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'm sorry. It, it's a completely unimportant comparison. But uh, the idea is is that there's this film being made, and right on film, as they're making it, the main actor, someone shoots him, and he dies. And they're all like, what the fuck? What happened? Somebody murdered this guy, and it really looks like it's the main female star of the movie. Like, all fingers point to her. But this... Uh, this other guy there is like, no, I really, he's, I mean, it's like the longest way around trying to get laid ever, but he's like, no, I don't think it's her. I'm going to stand by her, even though everyone's saying it's her. And the movie leads you on a series of red herrings along the way, including Bella Lugosi, whose only point in this film is to be one of the red herring characters to go like, oh yeah, maybe it was him who killed him. Uh, and you know, there's a series of like, look, we found this important piece of evidence and then the lights go out or something. And then the evidence is gone and somebody else is dead type of thing. No, this is not Clue the movie, yep. <laughs> which is considerably better. Uh, it's this, is just, what, it sounds like this is what Clue was taking the piss out of. Uh, well, no, Clue was taking the piss out of a lot of stuff, but I doubt they had ever seen this. This yep. is just this. It's really obscure. Um, I, I don't know. It, it's, you really have to be a student of film, serious student of this period of film to give a shit about this one way or the other. I mean, you got David Manners, who's a very decent actor, as your lead here. Uh, Adrienne Ames, who is a decent actress as well as your female lead. For whatever it's worth, it's it, it's a, if you're paying attention, it's an interesting enough mystery. But my God, there's got to be ten thousand movies made with more interesting mysteries than this yeah. one. There's nothing inherently wrong with it, except for the fact that nobody has like nobody was taking care of the negative of this thing. So even on Blu-ray, this is just sketchy as shit. Huh. I mean, like whole sequences that are like just uh, suddenly like whoa, really look terrible, and then it looks a little better again, or where the sound is all like really muffled and sounds awful, and in Kino's defense, this who put this out, this is the best copy you can get of this film. There's no better version of this. Some of the versions, but it's still Death Kiss. So some, you can yeah. never, you can never get away from that basic problem. Well, that it's just like a a very minor film. Yeah. No, I mean it's only interesting in that it's three of the stars of Dracula right after Dracula came out. That's really the only interesting thing you can say about this movie at Aww. all. Well, I know it's a shame too because I really I was kind of excited about this. I was like, oh, cool, this is probably going to be neat. And no, it's not. It's not neatish at all. It's got a commentary uh, by a, a critic who talks about the film and all the stuff. I mean, like, it, like I said, this is made for students of history. It's a Library of Congress film. Take that for what it's worth. <laughs> but if we're talking about older films that you really do need to see a re-release of, then I would say none better than Criterion's release of My Darling Clementine, which has one of the worst titles of any Western ever, because we all hate that fucking song. 
Uh, I mean, come on. Is there seriously anybody who doesn't hate that fucking song who's alive today? Yeah, well, I think in 1946, they'd had less time to loathe it. Well, now it's like, I would like to set fire to the guy who wrote this song at this point. I yeah. hate it just, I hated it when I was a kid. It was overplayed in the 70s, for God's sakes. Most people, you know what? Most kids today probably don't even know what the song is. Because, because we stopped using it because we realized it is evil. How horrible it is. But this is a John Ford movie who is next to Howard Hawk one of the greatest Western film directors of all time and is generally considered to be his best film yeah. and also generally considered to be one of the best Westerns ever made. I did not even know this existed. Did you not? Nope. Didn't nope. even know. Not I, I, I got, this not, is a... Not until I got the invite from Criterion and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I mean, this is John Ford's take on the, the gunfight of the OK Corral story. And if, uh, for you younger folks who do have only seen some newer Westerns, if you've seen Tombstone, this is the original version of, or not, maybe not the original, but this is the, the highest regarded version of that story. Uh, although it is the most incredibly, like even Tombstone, which is pretty fast and loose with, with some of the facts, that is way more historically accurate than this, because this is just like, oh, well, there's a gunfight, and there's a guy called Wired Up, and there's a guy called Doc Holliday. And, and, and that's pretty much the the basis in historical fact that it's got. In John Ford's defense, he actually talked to one of the guys who was at the the OK Corral. Well, and then he completely ignored him? Well, no, I mean, and, and he admitted a lot of this is total bullshit, but apparently the gunfight itself apparently is supposed to be almost exactly how it went down. Oh, yeah. Which, is, gun- which is interesting. It's, it's one of the few films that actually has the gunfight be about the right length, which is about 30 seconds. Right, right. It wasn't a very long gunfight, yeah. all things considered, as most gunfights are not. So I mean, he really built up the rest of the story, and the, the basic idea uh, is that Henry Fonda is Wyatt Earp, um, who, with his brothers, is driving cattle across across Arizona. Never happened. Never happened. Yeah. <laughs> Just completely made Literally up. Literally never happened. Um, and uh, they go into Tombstone um, and uh, come back and discover that the cattle are gone, their youngest brother is dead. Never happened. No, um, did not and, happen. And then <laughs> uh, they have their suspicions that uh, the uh, the Clanton family had, had taken them. Uh, so Wyatt Earp goes back into <laughs> goes back into town and then completely fails to do anything about that for the next hour and a half. Um, <laughs> no, he really is just this, like... It really... The, the, like, the actual A-plot of this film yeah. is the opening ten minutes and the closing ten minutes. Well, it's funny because, like, the, like, Walter Brennan plays the, 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 the patriarch of this other clan. And, you know, Walter Brennan's played a lot of, like, drunken cowboy-type roles and, like, almost comedy-type parts in, in westerns. And here he's the villain, which was a little weird for me at first. I mean, he's played other roles like this, but this is the, much more strongly. The, the only time I remember seeing him is the primary villain in something like yeah. this. And... You know, right from the beginning, like, everyone knows. Wyatt Earp knows that this guy took his cattle and stole, shot his brother. There's no question it was this guy. And he comes into town and, like, deals with some drunken Indian, like, with ease that everyone else is too frightened to deal with. So the town's like, hey, Wyatt, you used to be the most amazing sheriff ever. Why don't you be sheriff here? So he takes the job, albeit a little reluctantly, but it's like, well, we don't have any cattle to drive. And you think, okay, now that you have a fucking star, go to this dude's house and say... 
I'm gonna search everything you own and find my motherfucking cattle and which put wouldn't you be in hard the because they're right behind his house. They're cattle. Yeah, Where like, are you gonna put them? In yeah. your dresser drawer? Do you have a safe? <laughs> no, there's like a herd, giant herd of cattle that are all branded with a very specific brand. You can't put white out on a brand. I mean, that's the thing, though. John Ford basically has the, has the setup for this and goes, you know what? It's not really what this film is about. The film yeah. instead uh, becomes this heavily fictionalized, heavily fictionalized um, uh, romantic square uh, between... Uh, Wyatt Earp, who's uh, you know, Henry Fonda at his most yes ma'am, no ma'am. Although he does look at uh, at some points a little bit like Willem Dafoe with a moustache. He does. It's very alarming. Indeed. Um, Victor Mature as Doc Holliday. At his most glowery. Oh, Victor Mature is just spectacular in this. Yeah. He, he actually overshadows Fonda. I mean, at a point you think he's a universal monster. He's got so many shadows on him. Yeah. <laughs> he's, and he's basically just... he's kind of been keeping the law but only by basically hitting people he doesn't like yeah. or kicking them out of town so it's not really the law um kathy downs who plays the titular clementine who's this nice girl from back east who's come to find doc holiday and wonder what's up with him well he's dying of tuberculosis and fucking all the prostitutes yeah and he's, he's hooked uh, up with a whore uh, and played, and named Chihuahua. Well, played by Linda Darnell. Uh, it is not the most... There's a couple of moments She's here where... Sitting around the whole movie wondering where Taco Bell is. Yeah, there is. <laughs> there, there are a couple of moments where this film slightly shows its age. And I will have to give you that warning. Uh, for example, at the beginning, he go, he, uh, he Henry, for, Henry Fonda chastises somebody for selling alcohol to an Indian. And that's it. That is, you know, he's like, no, you, you can't do that. And they're like, oh, dear God, 1946 is a while ago. <laughs> um, but you take that into account of like, you know, that was the, that was the period of both the film and uh, what the film was talking about. And you get, right. you get past that. It is, you know, beautifully shot. Oh, it's just is, there are, uh, This is the closest thing I think you can get to a gothic western. Yeah. There, you know, the town is drenched in shadows. There are, you know, Arizona looks, it, you know, dark and imposing. And, you know, they, they kind of almost make it claustrophobic in places, which is an amazing achievement. Yeah. Um, and the performances are stellar, particularly uh, Victor, Victor Mature. Mature. This yeah. is. This I mean, is, I, I love Henry Fonda and everything. How can you not? He's Henry Fonda. Yeah. I mean, he is the greatest of the Fondas. You know, <laughs> by by a, a sizable margin, I would even go so far as to say. Uh, I, I I will see you would raise you the uh, the opening sequence of Barbarella, but that's a whole different thing. Yeah, but we're talking acting, not quality. Oh yeah, no, fair enough. Wrong. Yeah, Henry all the way. Um, <laughs> uh, that's a that's Jane Doe. Jane's well, had a Peach in, in Yuli's Gold, which nobody's seen. I, uh, I have not. I'm aware yeah, that, of it. But... That, yeah, great performance, and you can see where the you know the genes shine through. But yeah, I mean this. But yeah, when Henry Fonda is just kind of going. I'm not even going to get in Victor Mature's way in this because he is just, this is, you know, Doc Holder is a great part. Yeah. Doc Holder is some, he's kind of the. He's a third man for a while in this that everyone's talking about. Him. Yeah. Oh, Doc Holliday did this, Doc Holliday. When he finally shows up, it's really like, whoa. Yeah, he actually he, lives up to it. Yeah. But the idea of Doc Holliday's character is, is, yeah, he's like Hamlet in that, he or 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 Macbeth. He's one of those characters that you can tell every actor wants to do once, and there's a lot of mediocre ones, and there's a couple of great ones. And I think the great ones are this and Tombstone itself. I think he's this doomed, and he knows he's doomed. Yeah, but he's still he's 
he's has a code for whatever it is. And it's so important to him to stick to that code that he can't see the truth until it's right in front of him. Yeah. Um, it's a fascinating performance. This role better than I think Tombstone even. Val yeah. Kilmer's. In oh, Tombstone. And I, I love Kilmer. Uh, yeah, Kilmer I mean Tombstone, Tombstone is fantastic. Yeah. no question. But this is this is um, yeah. This is a Hollywood masterpiece of yeah. old Hollywood. It really is. And this comes with two versions of this film. There's the pre-release version, which ran at 103 minutes, and which is the one, uh, I believe, is is the one that has been seen ever since its release. Yeah. Like, the pre-release version is the one that came out, like, was played on TV and was played put out on VHS and DVD. And then now, the version that was the actual theatrical version, this is so weird that this is the reverse of what you, how it usually is. The theatrical version, the one seen in original theater, which is, runs at 97 minutes, which was just recently restored and re-released. And apparently there are huge differences between the two. I watched the, the pre-release version. I did not watch, uh, I did not watch the theatrical version. So it, it, it's like, it's another one of those weird examples where the, uh, the pre-release is the, uh, uh, or sorry, the theatrical version is the producer's cut that adds stuff that was p- directed by the producer, Derek, a uh, Daryl F. Zanuck that has new clothes, whole new close-ups and giant sequences that Ford didn't shot that his people came in and shot a uh, different soundtrack, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and obviously Ford did not like prefer that version himself, but both versions are here um, as well as a ton, a ton of extra stuff and a beautiful looking, uh, film here. There's a thing called a version comparison that he l- highlights the key differences between these two versions. Uh, the original trailer. There is a radio adaptation of My Darling Clementine from the Lux Radio Theater. I love it when they put those on here. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, Bandit's Wager, which is a Western short uh, directed by John Ford's brother Francis, uh, which is, eh, that's kind of interesting. 14 minute little Western short. There's a video essay that looks at the themes and relationships between the characters in My Dar- Darling Clementine called Lost and Gone Forever. There is, uh, from the, uh, I believe it's from, uh, the Today Show, uh, uh, thing called Report on Monument Valley, which focuses on the history of this, where uh, this film and about a billion other Westerns were filmed. Yeah. I think all of them, pretty much, we can safely say were filmed <laughs> in Monument Valley, except which, for which a few you, in Italy. You, you do watch and you just go, you actually look at where it is on the map, you go, yeah. why would anybody be there? It's yeah. not near anything. Yeah. Well, that's, Even today, it's a pain in the ass to get to. It is beautiful. Precisely why you film westerns there. Uh, you know, there ain't gonna be no planes flying in the background or anything. They're way too high for that at that <laughs> point to see from the ground. The David Brinkley Journal Tombstone, where uh, it takes a look at the, the David Brinkley Show, where he, he's focusing on the history of this town and all the stuff that happened there, which has got no end of stories other than Wyatt Earp and, and uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> The other guy, Doc Holliday. Doc God damn it. Uh, there's a brand new video interview with a Western scholar uh, who wrote a book about Wyatt Earp, who talks about the real Wyatt Earp and, you know, what things are myths in his story and what things are true. There's a brand new audio commentary. Isn't, isn't the quick answer there everything apart from the name? Right, pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> uh, the brand new audio commentary with a film scholar who uh, talks about John Ford's career. And then, of course, a leaflet that, that's uh, put into the case that gives a little essay about the film. This is a solid criteria on release. No question about it. But that's not the only Criterion film we've got this week. And yet another one that for me is a, a top, tough contender for for Pick of the Week. See, I, I can't go with you there. I think that F for Fake, which is the last feature film, finished film by Orson Welles, is a fascinating... It's not a film. It's a film essay. Even Welles said this isn't a movie. This is yeah. an essay about 
like things. It's not, it's not supposed to be looked at as a movie, but it's this incredibly fascinating look both at Orson Welles himself as a human being at what he thought was going to happen to the future of film, the way that film was going to change, which never happened. But like he did, pre- this did predate the short attention span filmmaking style of yeah. today, to be sure, by a major, by a big jump. Uh, and as well as like this pretty interesting look at, you know, the, the concept of looking at art and what it means at, through the context of what if a faker makes art that is just as good and just as quality as the stuff that he's faking, like where even the artist can't tell a difference. How is that not just as much art as the original art? Yeah. I mean, this, this it is so multi-layered. Oh, and, it, and yet flows. You know, this is one of these films that if you, if you want to really understand why people say Orson Welles was a master filmmaker, was one of the true greats. And even at the end of his career, when he was reduced to doing, you know, Ad- voiceovers for adverts for peas you know just totally depressing that he had fallen this far because he True. was too cantankerous too weird too forward looking and you know he, he in 1974 he makes one of the most forward looking films of the era he's you know on the first on his deathbed and he produces something which is sharp and shocking and brilliant the the if there's a story here which it's it's more kind of like there's a theme uh, sure. It's looking at uh, this guy called Elmer de Auré, who was a... Is that how you say it? Yeah, Auré. I was just saying whores. Yeah, uh, well, you always do. Right. Whores! <laughs> um, it's like a nervous twitch. Uh, who was a master forger. Um, you know, and this guy produced endless forgeries. Yeah. Uh, but The famous story is where like Picasso was going through these, which is probably apocryphal. Even the film says this story is probably not true. Yeah. But where Picasso was being asked to look through these and tell which were actually his and which were fakes, and he goes, pulls past one as a fake, and uh, the guy with him is like, wait, I just saw you paint that. And he's like, okay, nobody's going to fake Picasso's better than Picasso, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, continue. I'm sorry. But then there's a, a, a guy called Clifford Irving writes a, uh, a a biography of Doré. Um, but then Irving later gets caught out because he wrote a biography of Howard Hughes, which was completely faked completely and totally faked. fraudulent. And the degree to which these guys' relationship is actually fused, like, are they, were they working together on this to some degree as well, is never even completely answered by the film that suggests it. And yet... One interpretation of this film is that, like, I've heard this, that every shot in this film contains one thing that's a lie. Like, there's not one thing in this film that that doesn't have a lie in it. Well, but Wells at the beginning of it says, everything I'm going to tell you in the next hour is true. The thing is, the film is an hour and 28 minutes long. Right. (laughs) So there comes a point where, you know, he's told you, oh, no, after that point, you are open game. Right. You know, I will, I will abuse the trust of the audience um, and there's this incredible snap, kind of snapshot, snap patter, uh, story that he tells at the end, which is him and his then girlfriend. Uh, and she's telling this story about, you know, how she met Picasso and spent a few, spent a summer with him and slept with him a lot. And in return, he painted a lot of, he, he painted, drew a lot of pictures of her and she got to keep the pictures. 
but you're past the hour at this point. And well, it's like, know. is any of this true? And, you know, the, Wells wasn't just a filmmaker. He was a magician. He was fascinated by the, by artifice and illusion and what people want to believe. I mean, let's and not he, forget, this is the guy who did War of the Worlds as one of his And he goes back, he, he talks about what, you know, the, why people received War of the Worlds in the way they did. And he doesn't go, oh, people believe this. This is why they, be, they believed it. But this has this, this is this, Almost like a, you know, freeform jazz poem of a film, but again with this incredible level of control. And part of it is reconstructed from old interviews. Part of it's like super fast edits. I mean, for 74, the edit pace of this is just monstrous. Yeah. It still just has this, this speed to it that is, that I think few of the directors could ever pull off. I, I, you know, I think this is. I mean, if I have to say anything is influencing this as a filmmaker, it's probably Godard to some extent. I mean, certainly the absurdism of Godard is included here to some degree. But then Godard, like, got a lot of his absurdism from Wells. From Wells. You know, as well. like this, so it's, it's Wells always looking at the people who are around him and going, you know what? I may be fat and old, but I can teach you a few things. Mutual and, admiration society. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a, a just, an extraordinary film that takes an, an almost impossibly complicated subject and adds more layers to it. And but yet, it's kind of weirdly like you you grab on and you hold on to where it's going and you you understand what it's about the, because he he was such a great filmmaker. The thing is, like like I mean, you were saying the last twenty eight minutes is all fake, which they established towards the end. But the thing is, like early on, it is too. There's whole shots in here of interviews with people where they were never in the same room together. Yeah, it's assembled footage from completely different conversations that he put together to make you start to feel the film is going a direction that has that isn't really what was going on in real life. There's all kinds of lies in this, and that was his point. Yeah, was that this whole thing is a big put on in its own way and it is fascinating for what it is i don't i i think it's brilliant but i think it's failed is my feeling about yeah. this i think it's a failed experiment that is an absolutely fascinating failed experiment especially if you're really into orson wells this is probably the ultimate topper to understanding who this guy is i mean there may be no film that better shows who orson welles is or, than or he's more honest about I mean, he's totally honest about who he is in this and it, it's oh yeah you know this is, it, this I mean, is basically him going and in summation my career yeah, um, he's the narrator he's a character in it the documentary focuses on him to some extent uh it weaves in and out of these people's like lives and theories about their lives and other stories and like, I mean, like presenting like this woman who supposedly is Picasso's girlfriend, who was actually Orson Welles's girlfriend. And this is never made clear, yeah. even though even she's in the first 10 minutes of the film and never presented as his girlfriend. And you're like, yeah, they've been lying to you from the beginning of this movie. That yeah. whole last 28 minutes is not even true. It is. I don't think anyone today understands this film yeah. as part of why I think it's, a, I think he's so smart that he overestimated by several decades the intelligence of the human race to, un- <laughs> to get this movie. Whereas I, I think this is one of these films that, it, that why it comes so close to being my pick of the week is that it is something that I remember watching this when I was probably about 12 or 13 and just being entranced by it. And every time I watch it again, I'm like, it, it's <coughs> it's totally fresh to me. Because there's so much in here, you could you could basically just watch this once a month for the rest of your life, and you will find new things in them. You will find, you know, it will kick you in the ass every time. If you like documentaries that that 
don't just take an unusual subject, but take an unusual approach to documentary subject. I mean, I don't think you could have something like um, the act of killing, yeah. or even the thin blue line. You know these films. You know these films that, that really change how you know what it is you can say that a documentary is. This is one of the first ones that go. You take the structure of the documentary that have become so traditional and hidebound, and you tear all the rules up. It is the documentary as art, and this is one True. of the first pure examples of that. And you know you add into that the insanely charismatic Orson Welles. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you know it just it, yeah. This is a this is just a, a, a sumptuous moment in cinema. And let me add that this Criterion edition for scholars of Orson Welles becomes that much more important by the bonus features they have in here that really can more so flesh out significantly the fleshy Orson Welles at this point in his career. There's a, a Peter Bogdanovich inter- introduction because God help him, he can't help but put his two cents in on almost <laughs> on anything, anything that happened in the 70s. Oh, it doesn't there, matter there what is a certain is. point where it's like, Peter, we've heard your opinion on everything. On everything. Please go away. <laughs> uh, I I was there on the opening night of Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, and let me tell you, the, there were dwarves snorting coke off off my kneecaps. And like, yeah, whatever, Pete. We, we get it. Yeah, fascinating man. Yeah. Fascinating. <sighs> uh, there's a episode of Tom Snyder's talk show tomorrow where Orson Welles talks about the difficult production history of Effervegia. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. I can only imagine what people looking at the dailies were telling him. Are you serious right now? Um, I, mean, I don't think you could have you could have done dailies of this. No. This is such a creation of the edit process. Sure. Oh yeah, completely, hundred percent. In fact, a lot of this wasn't even filmed by Wells. Yeah. He was taking previously existing films and editing it, re-editing them, and cutting them up into this. Uh, his it talks about his friendship with Harry Houdini, which I never knew until this. I did not know he was friends with Houdini, which he continues to remind you, although he calls him Houdin or some pretentious thing like yeah. that. I don't remember. I'm like, it's Houdini. Get over it. Uh, success of Citizen Kane, the impact on his career, his love for radio, yada, yada. There's a full-length documentary called Orson Welles' One Man Band that takes a look at all the myths of him, the half-truths, and the, the truth about Orson Welles, uh, including a lot of archival clips and fragments that were filmed by Orson Welles during the years but never made it to a finished film, which is pretty interesting. There's another document, full-length documentary called Almost True, The Noble Art of Forgery that takes a look at Amir uh, de Hors. <laughs> it's, you just stuck with that now, aren't I'm, you? I'm like, Oz! Uh, who is, of course, one of the main characters from this uh, that was made in 1997. This is the movie, if you want to see the straight documentary about this guy, this is the the alternate documentary about him. Uh, There's a 60 60 Minutes interview with Clifford Irving, who in and of himself is a really fascinating faker, talking about his fake autobiography of Howard Hughes. There's the Howard Hughes press conference, which we see clips of in this movie, where only over audio, he basically said, this guy's full shit, I've never met him before, I don't know who he is this is not my book there's an audio commentary with with uh, the woman who was his girlfriend and partner Oja Kadar and as well as a cinematographer Gary Graver that uh, talks about this film and then of course a leaflet about it making this really in any Orson Welles collection an absolutely essential addition to it even if you're not really a fan of this movie you're like can't like like for me I'm like I don't really think I'm a fan of this movie I think it's fascinating I think it's more audacious maybe than any movie ever made before it. Yeah. I, I think that it's a work of a genius who, like many geniuses, can't quite figure out that not everybody is functioning on the same level as he is. And I think it's absolutely unmarketable on any level. Oh, yeah. But, it, it, but it's one of those but, films that reminds you 
why the studio system completely failed to take advantage of just how great Wells was. Yeah. And what a loss that was. True. Very true. And uh, what that he, different... he finally just becomes the, the ultimate genius outsider artist. And what this a different... Is the, this is probably the final great expression of that. What a different world it would be if he had been supported by the studios and allowed to do the things he wanted to do. If they'd given him the money to make his Heart of Darkness. Honestly, we probably never would have seen F for Fake if that had happened. Oh, we never, never. He never would have made this movie. They would have just, you know, he would have just maybe done it as a vanity project one summer while he was, you know, tying out his stack of Oscars. (laughs) Right, exactly. His studios? When will you learn? Uh, But another little, uh, another film that was, is definitely a little indie film that not a lot of people have seen in America. America, but was a monster. Including me, again. <laughs> a monster hit in Germany. Like, this movie swept the German film awards. Uh, it won everything. It won Best Feature Film, it won Best Screenplay, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Score. It was called Oh Boy There. Here it's called the much better title, A Coffee in Berlin. What are you, what are you saying? Oh Boy is a fantastic title no. if you have to be writing a sequel to Beach Party Bingo. <laughs> right. This is really a sort of modern day. It, it falls somewhere between Linklater's Slacker and uh, Holden Caulfield, you know, like type of story. You're losing me. You're well, losing me. But done in a very serial comic, like very. It's angsty, but not. But in a sort of like, I don't know. I guess I should be depressed. I just don't really feel anything way of like dealing with the modern world and a very interesting character who, yes, he's a slacker and yes, he should just fucking get a job already and get over <laughs> it. Okay. I agree with all that, but it's a fascinating black and white film that as a movie feels more like a Jim Jarmusch piece than anything else. And that was the thing that really struck me about that. It has that right balance of gorgeous cinematography, solid performances, a character on a journey who meets up with a lot of other very interesting people and set pieces along the way that sort of illustrate a larger feeling of like this airless bubble that they're all trapped in. Uh, you could have easily have called this as well uh, uh, hell as other people. <laughs> <laughs> I think as this guy who really just wants to be left the fuck alone and go out and get a coffee. That's I'm presu- so uh, yeah, I'm presuming you're meaning kind of coffee and cigarettes, Jamush. Yeah, not yeah. not not a mystery uh, train. Not night on earth, Jamush. No, no. But you know, you know what the type of Jamush I'm yeah. talking about. Um, this guy Nico, he's dropped out of the you know, the law school. He doesn't have a job. His dad has been sending him money, thinking he's still in university, and he's just kind of he's not spending a bunch of money on anything. He's just kind of for a while he was getting drunk. He's got he got a DWI, and now he's in trouble for it. So he's trying to quit drinking, albeit a little ineffectively. And to that end, in Berlin, he's continually looking for a cup of coffee. Which is nowhere to be fucking found. <laughs> Every coffee machine is broken. Every time he goes to buy coffee, he doesn't have quite enough change for it. Like, I have a dime too little. Is that okay? No. <laughs> you know, everybody is either a prick or crazy that he comes Can you, can you imagine many things worse than, than a, a, a Martinet German barista? <laughs> you, you're a nickel short. Leave. Exactly. Oh. Uh, but the coffee's made. Leave. And you know what? His shit, the like shit is just kind of crumbling around him and he just is, he's very disaffected, but not to the point of completely shrugging it off. Clearly, we don't know if he's heading towards a breakdown or if he's heading towards just suicide or if he's heading towards like, well, fuck it. I guess I'll get a job then. 
it's hard to tell anything about this character except that he's having a fucking shitty day, <laughs> you know, uh, and everything shitty that happens to him is really funny until it's not anymore. <laughs> uh, this film, it's odd. The references it makes to Nazi Germany, I don't completely understand them, but they're very fascinating. There's a sequence early on where he's going with his one friend and they go to a film set to meet another friend of the, of the other guy who's got the lead in this movie as a Nazi who, who who was in love with a Jewish girl and before World War II, but then the war happened, and then he decided that, okay, I'd rather try and save you than, than be a Nazi type of thing. Like, oh, it's a Nazi is a good guy. Like, what? And then ends with a sequence of an old man he meets in a bar who was a, a Hitler youth at one point during his life. Uh, you know, a distant life and is, you know, obviously has regret about it, but he's not drowning in it. He's just like, they're sitting in a bar and he's like, man, I threw rocks through the window of this very bar on Kristallnacht, you know, I destroyed this. And I remember this is a beautiful moment where he goes, I remember I was in tears because, you know, my friends and my father made me do this, but do you know why I was crying? Because I'd just gotten a new bike and I looked at the broken glass everywhere and I realized I would not be able to ride it for some time. It was like, wow, this reflection on this, like, weird selfishness that I see this movie is like, oh, I don't quite know how to do, doesn't that fall under that Godwin's Law thing? I'm not yeah. even sure. <laughs> but it's actually, it's, this movie's gonna really piss off some people. Just like, I don't give a fuck about this guy. You know, fuck this slacker piece of shit. <laughs> that sounds like something you'd say, no, don't watch this movie. But if, like, you you like stuff like Jarmusch, like the more quiet type of Jarmusch films, then I think you're going to love this movie because I totally fell in love with it. I, I ended up reading all about it afterwards online, like reading a bunch of reviews and stuff and going, this is a really fascinating movie that I still can't figure out why it works as well as it does. I want to come back and revisit it. It really is terrific filmmaking, and I completely see why the Germans fell madly in love with this film that was up against major big-budget films the year it won all these awards. And, and like I said, took it away from all of them, this tiny, tiny little indie film, like, swept away from all of them. That doesn't happen often here either, but there you go. Uh, the blue- and, and yet it... You have to come over here before we've got a, a non-terrible title. Yeah, I don't know what that's all about. I yeah. mean, Coffee in Berlin is the title of this movie. Like I said, or Hell's Other People. But uh, there is a 30, about a 40-minute look with uh, called A Coffee with John Ole Gerster and Ignat... I'm not going to try and say his name. One of the other guys who made the film. Uh, Ignati Vizhnet. Yeah, the guy who made the film, basically. So, like... Uh, it's an interview about the movie over coffee. Uh, uh, there's a thing on composing the score. There's a screen test with the main actor. Uh, there's an improv bit with uh, that's just a showcase for the talents of the co-star, who's a very funny sort of comic relief character in here. It's about ten minutes of outtakes, uh, four minutes of deleted scenes, more shit than you expect in a little indie film from Germany. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, A Coffee in Berlin is solid solid film for the type of people who like this type of film and one of the better films of this type I've seen in some time. All right. Well, let's move on to wait. I got to scan, 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 scan. Let's go back to horror here and talk about life about Beth life after Beth. after Beth. Get it right. Sorry. Ah. Rented lips. Slacker. (laughs) Um, You know, this was, I'm really, uh, I have very mixed feelings about the lead actress in this film. You know what I mean? Yeah, like I, I think she's very funny in the roles she plays that are always the same part. Yeah, 
uh, we are talking uh, about Aubrey Plaza. She's always cast as basically the same type of character. She's this very, she's very cynical. I just want to go to sleep. <laughs> character. I hate you. I all. hate you all. This is so boring. Uh, and do, she's do you very good. That at Chelsea that. Peretti's part in Brooklyn Nine Nine is was kind of a sp- for her? No, it's kind of a spoof of of all the parts it, that Aubrey Plaza normally gets. It could be. And Life After Beth starts with her playing exactly that role. You're like, ah, here we go again. Uh, Except it ends up being probably the best performance I've seen her do so far in anything. Like the most daring, the most like, fuck it, I'll do whatever you want me to do performance. I was like, wow, holy shit, that did not go where I was expecting it to go. And to top off all that, you think it's going to be some romantic comedy. It's a zom-rom-com. Yeah. This is a zombie movie with uh, the great Dane DeHaan, who is quickly proving himself to be one of the most interesting actors in Hollywood right now. Let's please don't hold the Green Goblin against him, for God's sake. Yeah. He's done a lot it's of good not stuff. His, that film was not his fault. No, it definitely was not. But uh, basically Why were his teeth suddenly rotten? Like, did he do a lot of meth like in between two scenes in that film? Like, I, it was inexplicable. It didn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, like so many films. But the beginning of this film, Audrey Plaza is dead. And she's amazing being dead. No, she's not. She's just dead. Uh, she's Beth, the titular Beth. And uh, his her boyfriend is Dane DeHaan, named Zach. And he's just totally def- devastated. He loved her. He's so upset. He starts spending time with her parents, played by Molly Shan- Shannon and and John C. Riley, who are very sort of like liberal. Hey, don't worry about it. Have a beer with us type of parents, you know, as it were. Uh, and... He goes back there the next day and they won't let him in the house. And he's like, what the fuck? They're pretending they're not home. He can see people in there. They won't let him in. Well, as it turns out, something happened and she's back from the dead. And she's not walking around like, she's just seemingly normal enough. She just doesn't remember dying or anything that happened. And honestly, at least at first... He's fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, this is, I don't care. You're back. I'm happy. Let's go do stuff. And she wants to, but she's like in love with him. Apparently we find out that they had pretty much almost broken up. Um, and she doesn't remember that. She doesn't remember that. And he's she fine basically with that. everything for the couple of days before, because that's part of actually, uh, uh, yeah, the setup is that the reason that she goes off for a walk and gets bitten by a snake is that she's trying to get over the fact that they've broken up. Yes. Whereas now, so he basically gets the relationship rebooted. Yes. It, it is not going to end cleanly. No. Let's say that. <laughs> uh, but she starts acting a little strange. She, towards the end of the night, sometimes can't remember what just happened or what happened earlier that day. She still, at the beginning of every day, she still thinks it's like everything reboots. Like you said, like, it's like, oh, I have a test coming up tomorrow. Her parents want nothing. They do not want her to remember she died. They're like, nope, we're just happy to have her back. Do not tell her. When he's starting to go like, look, she's starting to realize something's wrong. We need to tell her if you care about her. Well, she's not the only one who's been coming back, as it turns out. turns out pretty much everybody who died who's even mildly intact is coming back in in exactly the same sort of way. I don't remember what happened. Gee, it's great to be back. Why is everything different? I don't understand. Why are you all looking at me funny? <laughs> yeah, even people who are kind of more rotted and corpse-like looking are, like, coming back all rotted and corpse-like, going, what? <laughs> I don't understand. And this film finds its humor in that aspect of it, really. That sort of, like, uh, I, I don't get it. And as we watch these corpses become more zombie-like as we understand them and more have weird 
never seen it in any other zombie film before, like rules, like for some reason, really terrible Muzak. Soft makes, jazz. Makes them happy as hell. Yeah, they, they, just, it, they just calm down when you give them soft jazz. Yeah, and they love it. They're like, yeah. oh my God, isn't this the best music you've ever heard? I mean, it doesn't be really clever in that it takes every different kind of zombie myth of like, you know, the revenant kind of you know uh, idea and the, the traditional flesh eating crawl you know of the zombie and then the ones who've just come back of which there's been an increasing number of that kind of that kind of take recently yeah like but, the re- the returned on yeah French like the return. um and you have to and dealing with all those different emotional phases um and Dane DeHaan character just does that wonderfully oh yeah uh you know he really is the emotional heart of this but it wouldn't have know, worked at all without an actor capable yeah and he, and he's got that kind of you know, nebulous kind of blanched out boy next door charm, uh, which he which really helps you get a feeling that his guy's in pain. He's happy to have his, have this back, but he knows this can't be right. Right. He, you know, he's you know, you know, while the family's going, oh no, this got to be wonderful. He's you know, he has his concerns because you know she was dead. Let's face facts. This ain't right. Um, but yeah, Aubrey Plaza. Total revelation. Oh my god! I mean, and when she know, starts going, you know, they say you never go full zombie, but when she goes full zombie, holy shit! Yeah, like the stuff she's doing is like, wow! You are just like not many actors would have the courage to go to the degree of comedic gross outs yeah. that she's going to. <laughs> and it is funny, but it's also really sad it's, at the same time. And she yeah. and she she walks this knife edge. Yeah, between you know. This scene will be kind of ridiculous, but then you go like, "Well, yeah, but you imagine know if there's you an were, emotional connection there." That's imagine going if you were in her and Dane DeHaan's situation, dealing with this scenario. The film never lets you feel like this is absolutely just supposed to be comedy. Yeah, like what if this was really happening? There's a moment where she basically kicks a beach house to death, yeah. and it's crazy and absurd and insane. But at the same time, you're seeing his reaction as he's going. What is happening? What is happening to the woman that I love that I thought I'd got back after this incredible loss? And it's it's really it it's it's a like a more nihilist version of warm bodies. I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it poignant, but yes, it's it's in the same vein as warm bodies in a way. Like warm bodies is about being sweet. This is not about being sweet. Like warm bodies ultimately is more on the rom than the zom. This is more on the zom than the rom. That made me happy to say that. It was just... <laughs> You've been waiting to say that for months. <laughs> I, could, I could see it in your eyes. But anyway. they both function pretty well when neither one of them should as yeah. a movie. Yeah. Neither film should work. And they both do. And they both have about the same level of critical reaction. It was kind of half and half yeah. to like it to... Meh. I really fall on the super like to this movie. Yeah. Liked same here. it quite a bit. Same here. Uh, I mean, great cast. Uh, you know, Aubrey Plaza, Dennis DeHaan, John C. Riley, Molly Shannon, Cheryl Hines, Paul Reiser. Yeah. Uh, um, who I didn't even recognize. Uh, uh, Elias Shawkat, who turns up in the outtakes, and, a, and there was a subplot about Dennis DeHaan having a band, right. which turns up briefly, but you actually see the rest of the band, and she's in it, and her part is completely cut out. Anna Kendrick, who... Anna Kendrick in an uncredited role. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Well, uh, which is, that... like, a character you really... If I have one complaint, it's like, don't introduce Anna Kendrick to me just to have her end up having nothing to do. Yeah. Like, because she's like, seems like this is where the movie's going now. And then, you know, after her initial scene, you don't really see her again until the very end of the film. Yeah. It's like, really? Well, I, I like that because, that, you know, there's that implication of like, uh, you know, that things aren't going to work out for him. Well, you know, 
Here's Anna Kendrick. I, I, uh, I, plus, feel like you know, I feel like he took a step up. What film isn't improved by just a few minutes of Anna Kendrick? Okay, you got me there. Yeah. She's wonderful. She's and delightful. <laughs> um, and, uh, I'm a dirty old man for even thinking. Drinks, like, drinks like a fish. Uh, Is that true? Oh, uh, the the uh, complete diversion, folks. Uh, there was a screening of uh, Scott Pilgrim versus uh, versus the World, uh, the Draft House, a few years ago, and pretty much all the cast turned up, and including Anna Kendrick, um, tiny, tiny, tiny Anna Kendrick, yeah, like a scale model human. Yeah, um, she's called, still taller than Tom Cruise, though. Yeah, only just. Uh, and <laughs> Who she, isn't? he, and they have a Q and A at the end, and she goes, and somebody asks her a question. And she's like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I've been drinking all afternoon because I was fairly convinced you were going to ask, like, you know, Superman and, and Mr. Arrested Development here. I don't think you're going to ask me any questions. So uh, I am <laughs> way off. not prepared for this. That's I am hysterical. barely standing up. And I'm like, oh, at that point, every heart grew two sizes. You're like, oh, she's one of us. She really is. <laughs> she's an alcoholic. <laughs> she, it, uh, yeah, and in fact, she had a lot of great funnies on the story, on the set of uh, Drinking Buddies about like, they, nobody would tell her like they weren't giving her like, you know, lightly chilled tea. It was like, no, have a double bourbon and you're fucked. And she's like, I have no body weight. That's a completely different point though. She is really good in this. I, I, and I liked her, um, her inclusion. Um, uh, but yeah, this is Plaza, Plaza and Dehan just take a really difficult, weird, off-the-wall script and make you emotionally invested in it, yep. which is not what I would have expected from a woman whose basic career path so far has, has been making a kind of uh, face on Parks right. and Recreation. I mean, who does it extremely well. Yeah. No question. But still, but. you want more, and this is the first time I've ever seen her and I've gone, she can really deliver. I mean, even that the, the movie, she I forget the name of it, where she's like a, trying to make a list of sex stuff she wants to do, which was a genuinely funny movie, and she was genuinely funny in it. She was still playing that character, yeah. largely. Yeah. This, something different. I mean, there's a scene towards the end of this, the, the almost the very end of this, our last scene of the movie, that you, I, like, hold your stomach laughing funny, but at the same time, just so, just sad. Yeah. And like, and it works. Yeah. It's like, okay, good movie. I don't know why anybody didn't like this. Audio commentary with the director, Aubrey Plaza, Dane DeHaan, and Matthew Gubler. Uh, there's a, um, a, a EPK on here and then 20 minutes of deleted scenes. So, yeah, well worth including it. the, uh, the Ali Shawcross. <laughs> the the including the Ali Shawcross, uh, uh subplot. Right. Which is, which is a, I mean, basically they just went, you know, this is going to add a huge amount of runtime to this film, and it really doesn't need it, and it's not going to improve the story at all. Uh, sorry, bye. All right, Richard. Fine, we can talk about fucking see no evil too. Yay! Uh, Yay! I get to tell you you're wrong. Um, I love doing that. Are you? Uh, do you just have a hard on for the Sasuke sisters? Because I can't figure it out. No, um, I, I know you don't. I'm sorry. That sounds horrible. No, uh, they are delightful. They, they are, they they are, are very, crazy. Nice. Um, very nice. This is the first time somebody has given them a budget. Uh, this is a sequel to the WWE film uh, See No Evil. Right there, you go. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> fuck you. The day, the day. No, the I, I, I will, I will, the I will fight a motherfucker. What movie? The day, the day, the day. I never saw that. that. Was the, they acquired that out of, out of Fantastic Fest uh, in 2011? I think it was, and that is a one of the 
best low budget uh, end of the world films uh, you you was will it, ever was see. Was it made under the WWE? No, it wasn't. They acquired it, but they have a very. See, but the thing is, they've got they they've developed a really interesting taste. They are prepared to take, I think, more risks than a lot of other companies are, are prepared to do. And I just have personally yet to see it. That's all. Yeah, it, it's really good. Uh, but you know, they they um, co-produced Oculus as well, which was. You know, a decent horror film, yeah. but I don't, I, I don't think far, solid, far from solid film. Uh, this is this is a sequel. I'm not going to gonna blame uh, them for my problems with two thousand to two thousand six. Um, See no evil. Uh, <laughs> it was a long which was, time to go for a slasher sequel. Yeah, um, well, it's about about well, what was it? Fourteen years between uh, Chainsaw Massacre one and two. Yeah, but no one ever thought they were going to make a sequel. Then that, that was true. not in the era of sequels. Yeah. Yes. But uh, you know, the, at the end of the first film, Jacob Goodnight, uh, played by the WWE wrestler uh, Kane, uh, who has been very gruesome. I mean, it is it is one of the gorier films of the mid two thousands. There's a lot of plucking out of eyes and wedging chains into people's backs. Uh, he has had a huge hole put in his head, uh, and yes. he's very very much dead. As you can tell by the fact that maggots start crawling out of it. Um, <laughs> there is this... no way he's still alive, yeah. and yet. <laughs> this is this is uh, this is the uh, Halloween two to um, uh, uh, it's Halloween oh, uh, the right. the uh, you, know, you you cut straight to the mortuary yeah. where his body is being brought in in the sense that it's a bunch of people dying now in a mortuary yes yeah. he and he is still very very dead so in a way it's also actually Maniac Cop two to its Maniac Cop because oh, you've established that oh. You'll get your chance in a second. Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, just pat the cat or something. I'm, I'm so, okay. Come here, Mike. Um, and you know you have the the Soskers decide decided let's have references to you know, little hints and habits of, of other films. They bring Catherine Isabel back from American Mary, who plays drunken crazy so well, and for, uh, more importantly, Ginger Snaps. Yep. Hey. Um. And uh, Danielle Harris, who, speaking of tiny, uh, <laughs> talking of extremely tiny actresses, and she is tiny, and this is great, which really works when you put her up against Kane. You know, Glenn Jacobs is six foot eleven, mm. and you put Danielle Harris, who basically is knee high, uh, and, is and you maybe the most prolific scream queen working today. Yes, yeah. I think almost pretty much undeniably. I mean, two oh, hatchet yeah. films, Urban they, Legend, Halloween films, both the Halloween remakes include, and also Halloween four and five. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, Stake all hunt. three hatchets, as you said. You're like, you might. It might not. Might be hard to argue with that. Sure, uh, plus, if you if you ever watch the series Holliston, she turns up as an evil version of Daniel Harris who of steals course. people's money. There you um, go. And you know, it's basically a classic sealed, uh, sealed in a mortuary. Here comes the the uh, the big guy to, you know, to kill you. Um, but it just does some really fun things of playing with the structure and playing with the tropes that I really hugely enjoyed. What were the, those I mean, it's things? A, it, hmm? What were those things? Well, it completely turns the concept of the, of the final girl on its head. Not okay. You know, a lot of people have done that before. I now. think this does it better. Really? Yep, I think it absolutely does it better. I think uh, it's far more fun. I found. Uh, I you know, and uh, you get to the end and you go, oh, this is quite an unpleasant little movie. I think that, uh, you know, this is the Sos- <laughs> yes, I agree with you there. <laughs> yeah, I think this is the Oscars being given, you know, you know, doing a a conventional slasher movie, yes. uh, and having great fun doing it, uh, and then just bringing enough of their trademark of their trademark. We're going to be you know, subversive uh, wit to it that you know you get to a, there is there is a moment in this that if you see coming. 
and you tell me you see it coming, I'm calling you a fucking liar. There is a moment where you go, oh, no, shit, I thought this was going to be super conventional all the way to the end, and no, 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 it's really... Ooh, hang on, what? Wait. And it does that really smartly and really... Are you talking about the thing that messes with the first girl, uh, final girl concept? Because I went, and... I've seen so many people do this already. But I, you know, I, I don't think... You know, I've seen other people do <laughs> I didn't something. see it coming because everything else was so rote. I was like, oh, well, they were trying to be different, except they're not really different. Uh, I, I really like that. Okay, you know, I, I really have fun with that. And, and you know, I, I don't mean... Catherine be... Isabel and Daniel Harris are just, you know, just let them do stuff. I don't Catherine mean Catherine Isabel, be... uh, whoring it up on corpses yes. is hilarious. The high point of this film, no question. Yeah. <laughs> Watching her have sex on top of... Kane, a dead Kane at this point, is by far the high point of this film. Wow, I just said those words. Um, <laughs> I love watching Catherine, uh, 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 Catherine Isabel have sex on top of dead wrestlers. It's the best thing ever. It's like Christmas. <laughs> but everything else in here, just so bland, not very intense gore on the whole, very cut. This felt almost edited for television cut to me through most of it. Like, really? Because I thought the Saskas just really liked exploring gore. I wasn't the hugest fan of American Mary, but I felt it was at least trying to do something that we hadn't seen before. This feels like it's trying to do exactly what we've seen before. It feels like every other direct-to-DVD horror slasher film that everybody else makes, except maybe a little more competently than most the, most of the other why-should-I-give-a-shit ones that come out. I mean, this the, isn't a, a, a you know new radical deconstructionist take on, no, on the no, slasher no, no. I, I think it does that. I think it does it a lot better than most of the ones we've, we've seen recently uh, and I think it has enough smart moments where you really go they know what they're playing I mean, with. and, and cast, casting Daniel Harris in, in a slasher movie at this point you know the, the fact that the other people who've done that recently are you know, Adam Green right. uh, a man who understands exactly how to dismantle the, the slasher movie while doing it right I, I think this is their hatchet well, this is this is the hatchet. See, too. but this that's where the... that's where I'm where I can't agree with you because I'm like, I love the hatchet movies. I think they're so much fun and they're so clever. And that's an example of people making slasher films that aren't really breaking a lot of rules. They're doing more or less the stuff you expect it to do. That are w- slyly winking at the unknowing audience who watch these type of films, and it really works. It consistently entertains and it drenches the screen with gore and blood. This, for uh, me, a hardcore horror fan that's like, okay, I'm ready for this to be a standard slasher, but better than most, just kind of kept backing away from doing anything interesting. Mm. That's for me. Yeah. I mean, I was did laugh at the beginning of it because one of the first shots is two corpses in the mortuary, and it's the Sasuke sisters, yeah. who we know because they were at Fantastic Fest. We're like, God damn, I'm almost getting sick of seeing you now. There is there is a very entertaining uh, 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 making of uh, uh uh, extra on this disc uh, with lots of early photos of the sisters and it was really clear that until a certain point in their lives they were actually trying to not look alike <laughs> they were trying really hard to not, right. not look alike and, and there's a point where one of them is blonde which really throws you That's bizarre. And, they, and they definitely went you know it's a look and now they look like two absolutely identical sisters trying not to look alike rather than two sisters who've actually managed to not look alike. So was it Danielle Harris or Catherine Isabel that was at, at uh, Fantastic Fest this year? Uh, I, I don't know. I'm seeing either of them. I want to say it was it was uh, Catherine Isabel. She may have been there. But was the, she very drunk? 
Yes. It was probably Catherine. Apparently, at one point, she was pulled aside and told, if you can't behave during films, you're going to have to leave the festival. Uh, And I was there at one of the films when she was not pulled aside, when she started having sex in the seat with the guy next to her. Now, I'm not 100% sure it was her, but it was, she was like, I was the star of American Mary, which is, in fact, you know. Catherine Isabel, so I'm assuming that that was her. Yeah. It didn't look like her because she was slathered with make- goth makeup, but... Maybe it wasn't her. Maybe it was one of the other cast members. Yeah, maybe Because I don't was. think I saw her there. But regardless, that was obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, hey, it's like chewing gum, all right? If you bring it to class, if you didn't bring it up for everybody, then don't bring it at all. <laughs> That's a horrific image. Um, I'll, just saying. I'll just hover above a, a draft house seat from now on. Well, uh, yeah, right. Uh, speaking about really, really, really gothy stuff. Hey! We were talking for a minute about Penny Dreadful, which is a British-American cross-production TV show created for Showtime and Sky by John Logan, who executive produces alongside Sam Mendes. The great Sam Mendes. Huh? Are you... You don't like Sam Mendes? No, I like Sam Mendes. He uh, just been—he just felt like he'd been AWOL for a while. Well, he's been doing stuff, things, things, this. things. He did things. Well, I mean, he did do Skyfall, for God's sake. Well, true. Yeah, I mean, that was probably the best James Bond film. Hmm, that is true. I mean, you're a British guy. Do you disagree with that? No, I, th- I think I think that's a, it's a, a one of the best. It's a ones. bold statement, but yeah. it's still probably no, it's a, true. It, it, it's it's one of the best. I mean, it's got. Plot holes you could drive a, a, a tube train falling through the ceiling through. But they all do. Um, but <laughs> they all do. Yeah, that is, that is fair. I think yeah, Man with at, a Golden Gun has the least plot holes if only because it only takes place in one location. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's got a tiny man. It's, it um, um But this is the most gothy thing that has ever gothed since the movie Gothic by Ken Russell. And... All that being said, that to that degree of it, it does it so much better than it has any right to do it. It is a mashup of Dorian Gray from Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, from Mina Harker and Van Helsing from Dracula, uh, Victor Frankenstein and his monster from Frankenstein, and other stuff that I can't tell you because otherwise it would give spoilers of the plot, although if you can't see it coming a mile away, you were playing with your phone or something while you're watching <laughs> these episodes, because it's really fucking obvious. But that's not really a problem. You've got, like, I mean, it starts with, uh, 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 what the hell's his name? Uh, Tim- Timothy Dalton playing Sir Sir Malcolm Murray, who is like hardened explorer of Africa, who is on this quest to find his kidnapped daughter, Mina, who has been kidnapped basically by a master vampire and never established to be Dracula. He's more of a a feral Nosferatu type, really, when we finally see him. And he's accompanied by Eva Green, who plays uh, Vanessa Ives, who, guess what, takes her clothes off a lot. Uh, Does she stare wildly at people by any chance? A a bit, a bit. Uh, She plays, uh, like... She's got powers. It's never entirely clear the degree to what these powers are, but obviously she has a very significant link to the supernatural one way or the other. She's good. She has a certain amount of fortune telling, a certain amount of connection to the spirits, but she doesn't have a lot of connection of uh, control over it. Uh, and they meet up with Josh Hartnett. Hey, where has he been? Seriously. Yeah. Who plays Ethan Chandler, who is a American Wild West show guy who is like a master sharpshooter. And they're like, do you really want to be this douche telling fake stories about like the Wild West going to these silly shows and fucking like, you know, 
local woman the whole time, or do you want to do something actually important with your skills? And he goes, call him A, please. He's like, I actually kind of do want to do something important until they take him on the first mission versus vampires, and he's like, what the fuck is this shit? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, this is not how the world works. And along the way, there's stuff like Billy Piper, who a lot of people know as Rose from Doctor Who, who plays basically an Irish uh, immigrant hooker who is starting to believe that maybe there's something else for her when uh, when Josh Hartnett's character sort of fall, meets her and falls for her. He's like, I don't want some pretty painted lady. I want like a woman who's a real person. And they sort of have a thing going on. And then you have, like I said, uh, uh, Victor Frankenstein, uh, played by Harry Treadway, who has is one of the most interesting arcs about this where in the beginning he's we see him he builds his monster his monster comes to life we're like this is going to be scary and his monster is this totally sweet lovable huggable guy he's like <laughs> everything is so beautiful oh my I want to hug everything and love everything and then we find out he's not the first Frankenstein's monster <laughs> and it goes from lovable to the, the, the plot goes from lovable to oh fuck that's messed up <laughs> um Dorian Gray is like a, a very, like, I mean, he's, he might as well be Oscar Wilde himself. He's like, fucks everything in sight and takes all the drugs he can find because we know, although we never really see the front, front of it proper, that he's got this big portrait and it's hidden away in his house that's the degrading evil version of Dorian Gray so that he can stay forever young and beautiful and what have you. And he proceeds to have sex with everyone on screen, pretty much. I mean, even, all right, so let me just say this. The biggest downside of this, there's two downsides. One, although it's not plot-driven, it's character arc-driven. And I don't know if that makes any sense and difference. It's not very episodic, per se. There's a few that are, and the best episodes are the self-contained ones. There's some spectacular self-contained episodes in this. Like, there's a whole self-contained one where Eva Green is possessed, and it's actually frightening as fuck. I mean, no, can you imagine Eva Green being possessed by the devil? You mean she's not? Yeah, I know, right? I think she already is, but it's a no-brainer. Great, great, great. Eva, Eva Green voted most likely to possess the devil. Yeah, right. <laughs> it might work the other way. Uh, um, wonderful stuff like that. But the, re- but like, it can be a little like, where are you going with this throughout a lot of the rest of it? You're like, you've got so many pl- arcs going on. I'm not sure any given episode what the story is. That can be a problem, and certainly it. Even though there are a lot of great episodes, it's. It felt like we're not sure we're getting another season towards the end because its last episode is the weakest episode of the whole show. They did get renewed, and I do look forward to seeing what they're happening, but the last episode feels rush, 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 just in case we don't get another season. We want to make people feel there's some sense of closure. Mm. Uh, The real worst thing about this is, have you ever seen a Showtime show? Yeah. You know how they are with injecting sex and nudity and sex scenes and stuff? Yeah. And you know how they're like, much like stars, they're like, don't know how to put it in and not make it feel like they totally crowbarred the shit in here. Do they just run run in front of you and shout, boobs, and then run away? I mean, like, HBO looks like a renaissance painter by comparison. (laughs) They just, I don't know what it is. Even when the rest of the show is really good, for whatever reason, it's just like, there's some boobs. And here's a sex scene. There's no reason. Like, there's a sequence where Josh Hartnett has sex with Dorian Gray. There is absolutely not a single character or plot reason for that to happen, except they're like, ooh, we need a weird sex scene here. Like, Mm -hmm. why? Why is that here? I don't care that two men are kissing. I don't care about that at all, except that nothing in the plot leads up to this. (laughs) It has no sense at being in this story, except Showtime is like, we need to have sexy stuff. Regardless... 
I think the show is any better than it has any right to be for eight episodes. It's wonderfully filmed. Like the cinematography of this, if you like creepy gothic, classic gothic sense stuff, is just gorgeous. Like jaw dropping at points. It's super gory. Like, oh my God. Even I like, even I was a little sickened by some of the stuff they show in this. And like I said, there are moments that genuinely sort of wrench at your heart with as you start to find out some more about these characters. The standout is Eva Green who is really showing what? what she can do. She's always been a good actress. She just takes B roles. Yeah. You know, she's anything she's in, she's always the best thing in it. Almost always she's the best thing. She's in terrible uh, movies. Sin City 2. She, she's in terrible movies, and she's the best thing about those terrible movies. Sin City 2. Well, once again, the reason she gets hired for some roles is because it's like, I don't care, I'll be naked the whole time. I mean, that's kind of her... She basically should just be the, the, the uh, uh, Skinamax go-to gal. Pretty much. Yeah. But I, I do really actually recommend this. It, I, it's not for everyone. If you do like this type of gothy, I mean, it's called Penny Dreadful for Christ's sakes. It is a Penny Dreadful. Yeah. It's exactly what it claims to be. Don't, if you, the first episode underwhelms you, which it did me, I was like, well, okay, but it looks kind of standard monster of the week type monster hunter stuff. It's not what it looks like from the first episode. It's actually pretty goddamn different from what the first episode tries to sell you on. Just not everybody's cup of tea. So I'd say check it out. I think it's one of those shows that by the second season might really find its feet and become something remarkable. Uh, now we're going to move to what is my pick of the week, because I really don't know how I could have possibly picked Same anything here. else. It, it really is. Like, I mean, I, I'm like, to, considering how much I loved some of the stuff that, that we've talked about so far this evening, yeah. like this, it, it, this. It's just hard to argue with, especially a lot of this stuff being the first time ever released on Blu-ray. We're talking about the, from Scream Factory, a.k.a. Shout Factory, the Vincent Price Collection 2. Now, the Vincent Price Collection 1 was, indeed, spectacular. Yeah. No complaints. I mean, a lot of the A-list Corman and Vincent Price films are in this. Like, the bulk of the Edgar Allan Poe collection, the original, the abominable Dr. Fives. It's terrific. Yeah. Like, like I'm... Conqueror there's Worm. Not, there's not a bad thing you can AKA say about which that one general. But that being said, some of the more fun Vincent Price stuff is in this set. Yeah. Uh, this set includes The Last Man on Earth, which, for you guys out there, this is the original adaptation of Richard Matheson's, uh, 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 what the hell is it called? I Am Legend. I, I Am Legend. Uh, and the only version yet filmed that is actually more or less true to the original story, with Vincent Price in the lead, and it's absolutely wonderful. It's got Dr. Fives Rises Again, the sequel to Dr. Fives, which some even think is better than Dr. Fives. It's certainly a little crazier. Oh, it's completely fruit bats. Oh, and it's wonderful. Yeah. It's so funny and clever and beautiful looking. It's got The Tomb of Lygia, which is probably the most serious film on this whole thing. Like, one of the serious Poe adaptations, which is still really good. Price playing it straight and genuinely being very effective at it. It's got The Raven, which is by far the, one of the goofiest things on here, and one of the best horror comedies I've probably ever seen. Very light on the horror, very high on the comedy. This could be a sub-story in the Harry Potter universe, with a Price... Peter Lorre and Boris Karloff playing magicians that are dueling for power as Price is the, I don't give a shit, you guys can have the king of the magicians, I just want to be left alone. Lorre is the conniving, like, conniving, like, yes, I'll help whoever looks like they're winning. And Boris Karloff is like the guy who just wants all the power and wants to, this has nothing to do with the raven, for the record. Absolutely. Well, apart from the fact that, like, it has the same title and a bit of it is red early on, and that's yeah. it. And, well, in, and uh, uh, Lenore is actually a character. Yeah. 
Uh, and not dead. <laughs> not dead. Yeah. Uh, the Comedy of Terrors, which was considered to be the, which was basically the thematic follow-up, where it reteamed those three actors again. Well, the film is not quite as good, but still pretty funny. I, no, I think I actually, I actually prefer it. Do I you? prefer it to the Raven. Oh, I love uh, it. So I mean, because I think the the Raven, it's got some great bits. It doesn't really hang together as a whole for me. Oh, see, I, I love Whereas it so uh, Comedy of Terrors um, is kind of a weird gothic spoof. It's slightly more of a screwball comedy. Uh, oh, it's of, definitely more screwball. Of, uh, you know, Vincent Price is this uh, mortician who decides to drum up some business uh, by uh, randomly killing people, but actually isn't very good <laughs> at it. Um, and it, you know, it adds Basil Rathbone into the mix, so you've got one of Price's oldest, dearest friends in there. Yeah. Uh, I think also Karloff gets that it's supposed to be funny because I don't think he understood that the Raven was supposed to be funny. No, and there's even a little in- – some of these have an intro and outro by price from a PBS session when yeah. they were basically doing a marathon of these films that are, that are wow, worth the price of owning this alone. And he talks specifically about that where it's like, look, I like doing funny, but when you're working with Peter Lorre, he's the guy who's funny and you're the straight man. And then the two of us together and Boris Karloff's like, what the fuck is going Particularly on? Particularly because Karloff didn't do improv. Yeah. Not and, they're, and they're riffing off each other. And he's like, uh, we're doing the lines. Uh, and because of the nature of his part as this kind of senile old guy who just gives commentary um, in Comedy of Terrors, I think he meshes a lot better. Rathbone comes in and just is just glorious and overloaded over the top. Right. Uh, I think it's all, uh, Comedy of Terrors works better for me, I think, also because it's much more Price's film and it's, and it's less of kind of a... I, I think Corman didn't quite know how to do a double act. Hmm. Um, it, it, he, he didn't really capture i think what was going on between laurie and price so well i think that's where it falls down a little bit uh i think this is a much more fully formed comedy hmm. uh but well i mean it's know, certainly but the fact to... that one you know you are bound to like to really really love one of these two comedies on here I think true it's... they're both really good i yeah. just personally preferred the raven mainly for the ending like there's a 10 minute duel between wizards at the end of this film that's which very, is kind of like bed knobs and broomsticks it, it's totally it's very light and funny and clever and the whole time vince's eyes are practically vince's eyes are practically twinkling he's clearly having so much fun doing this and it's fun to watch them you've also got return of the fly the strangely black and white sequel to a color film yeah. that returns with vincent price more in a more in a primary role than he was in the original here and then one of my favorite William Castle films if not my favorite uh, who generally makes really just Z-grade horror that was made with manipulative stuff in the, in the theaters to affect people. House on Haunted Hill. They made a terrible remake of it some years back, but this is just a fun movie with a really clever twist at the end that, yes, is completely implausible that it would actually happen this way, but is kind of a rarity in the haunted house genre. I can't tell you why. Yeah. There's a, there's a, the twist makes it like, really? <laughs> I, and this box set, I mean, the first box set was, it was kind of the real high points or, and the most famous parts of uh, Price's collaborations with AIP and Corman throwing in uh, Conqueror Worm. I and mean, that's much more of a, a straight horror box. Yeah. This is the horror comedy stuff with the start of his, his sci-fi stuff, which is really Last Man on Earth, Return of the Fly, which are both, you know, Big SF elements. Uh, I, for me, in many ways, the standout because I think a lot of people won't have seen it uh, is Last Man on Earth. Uh, I think that's his best genuine acting performance. Yeah, because he the first forty five minutes of it, minutes of it, is this guy who 
I think he, I think Keith, per, I think he personally thought Theater of Blood was his best performance, which well, I've still not, Buzz, which I've still not seen. Believe. Well, I'm really hoping that we get a uh, third collection. Yeah, was that not in the first one? No. Oh, no, see, that's Theater, a shame. Theater of Blood's not in there. There's that more is, than enough great Vincent Price films. This, that that's the thing. Out, I was already but... thinking about it and going through and there's like this list of like these other ones I'd really like to see in a second in, in, yeah. in, a, in a third box set, and I'm. And most of his stuff was released by AIP, AIP in the States. So if they've got to deal with AIP, they'll probably be able to get it. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he does you know, just so many great performances. But this really is just heartbreaking. This is a guy who is the last person alive. He is a, uh epidemiologist who has seen this disease, which has you know, wrenched its way through the world, uh, killing everybody, turning a handful of them into shambling vampires. Uh, it is very clear uh, that uh, a certain Mr. Romero <laughs> <laughs> probably saw this film. It, yeah. it, it is a really enormous influence I mean, on... Uh, I mean, really, they're, 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 they're zombies before and to be a thought of zombies. Matheson's original story, even though they were in theory vampires... It's very clear when you read it, you're like, this is the birth of the modern zombie. Yeah. This is what where that came from. Like, the idea of the modern zombie to some extent, you know? I mean, that this is that. Yeah. And, and, and sure enough, that's that's watching the film just makes it that much more cemented. And it's wonderful. It's so, it's stark. It's Price at his most serious. Because uh, that's the thing. I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, everybody remembers... Vince, uh, Vince Price's career, but most of what they're looking at when they think about it right. is kind of the post-Return of the Fly stuff. The camp when stuff. he was when he was becoming a horror and camp and comedy guy. But he was a, he was an extremely well-respected actor oh, yeah. when he was younger. Um, you know, and some you know, I, I think there's uh, you know, if we get Volume Three, I really hope we get something like Confessions of an Opium Meter. Right. Um, that you know, which again proves he was a really serious guy, um, and this is more kind of and the that, that the third of, and that third Doctor Fibes movie. Oh wait, they oh. never made it. Oh. I'm so sad about that. When I finished watching rewatching the second one, I was like, it's the saddest thing that ever happened that they never made another Doctor Fibes movie. <laughs> I mean, literally nothing is sadder. Nine Eleven, Vietnam, Normandy Beach, nothing is as sad or as tragic as the fact there's no third Doctor Fibes. Film. <laughs> Remember, folks, send those letters. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I'm kidding. Send those letters to. We got it covered. Um... Uh, uh, they actually, funny enough, they wrote six different sequel scripts ah. to Doctor Fibes. Were like six different attempts were made and started and almost launched into pre-production to make another Dr. Five films going all the way into the 90s. Wow. Yeah. Never happened. And now Tim Burton is talking about it, which means, uh, you know what? I don't want to see that Dr. Five no, movie. No, no. I mean, this is, this is an incredible set. The films are great. The extras are ridiculous. Why, why does Scream Factory continue to go above and beyond the call of duty to deliver films that are for such a niche audience just like criterion level quality special features i don't know yeah but god bless them for doing it yeah i mean the, you know if if you have a friend who likes horror comedies and this really this is this box set is very heavy on on prices horror comedies oh yeah um this is a must buy for christmas uh if you know somebody who who loves uh is a film historian again 
because there's so much material on here, so many extras and so many commentaries by people who understood the films. This, you know, we we probably have to do a separate podcast just to list all the extras on this set. It's in, in, insane. Between this and the first one, it's a great introduction to Price. This is like a gr- terrific collection of just some of the best of the best yeah. from this guy's I career, mean, uh, illustrating various different periods and styles. I mean, there is, uh, so far between these two sets, they have they put seventeen, uh, sorry, uh, thirteen films hmm. together. And the first thought when you look at it is, go, yeah, there's like I've got a list of another six you need to put out right now. Right, right. <laughs> and there are only people that, that put out twenty films worth talking about in their entire career. Very true. And he put out twenty twenty films in a in brave, basically a. You know, fifteen year period of his career that were all wonderful, right? You know, I mean, he, he you know, some some and of them are, are bad the, films the, in in kind of technical ways. The best but work still of, great the best work of Roger Corman's career was because he was working with Vincent Price. Yeah, you know, it was like that was when Price, Corman went. I have this opportunity. I don't want to fuck this up. Yeah, I'm going to do this right. He actually took it seriously for a while. Yeah. And and surprisingly, it turned out to be a pretty good filmmaker. Yeah. And then immediately stopped and started doing schlock again. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? Shocktopus. Uh, yeah, well, you know. Shocktopus. Take it for what it's worth. Yeah. Well, anyway, yes, that is our pick of the week, the Vincent Price Collection. So terrific. Uh, collection 2, mind you. Wonderful stuff. A valued part of my collection. Well, we reached that point of the end of the show, Richard, where there's Aww. only one thing left to do before we say goodbye, and that's to do our giveaway. And our giveaway for this week is a Japanese film called A Letter to Momo. Even though I was a little confused because really this should have been called A Letter from Momo, but uh, okay, maybe it was a mistranslation error. Uh, this anime is very much in the school of Studio Ghibli-type films. Honestly, if you like Miyazaki Ghibli-type movies, like the stuff that's more focused towards children, big on they've done, like Totoro and stuff like that, then you're going to adore A Letter to Momo. Is uh, it- are, there really, are there any really uncomfortable uh, whole family bathing sequences, which really, throws, really throws a lot of people when they, when they first see uh, Totoro? Wait, are are, are, are we talking about the sci-fi series that we like, or uh, that's different? Uh, <laughs> what is that show? Goddamn! Why can't I remember the name of it? Defiance. Defiance. Yeah, which has some very awkward whole family bathing sequences. But you're right. Like in some of the Miyazaki films, there are some whole ba- family bathing sequences that do not fit comfortably into the American schema. Of <laughs> it's not like they're reaching around or anything. I mean, it's, it's all just... it's all it's all perfectly innocent, but it's like no, no. <laughs> No, no, none of that. Here, uh, Momo is an 11-year-old girl who's very upset because her father died recently, and she really feels like she she's convinced herself that to some extent it was her fault. It was uh, his it was his birthday. She had planned with her mom to get him tickets to this event, and then he was like, it didn't tell him until the moment of, and then he's like, I can't. I have a work thing I have to go to. I mean, he like goes out and works on, on like in dangerous ecological stuff on a good way. Like He's like, I gotta deal with this. And when he goes out, a storm kills him, and she's like, if I had just pushed harder, and the last words she said to him were, I hate you, because she was so mad that he was gonna do this instead of be, you know, go do this birthday thing she was so excited about. So obviously she's a little upset. <laughs> a little freaked out. So they leave Tokyo, she and her mom, and they go to her childhood home, which is a tiny little island named Shio. And right off the bat, she's like, I don't want to fucking be here. This is this is shit. They're there with uh, her grandparents, who she doesn't, who are kind of creepy in the way that, not creepy in like a real creepy way, creepy in the way that 
grand, old people are to an 11 year old you're like I don't but particularly get, in anime why does everything smell this way always, always <laughs> creepy yeah, why does everything smell musty and what is this old shit everywhere why do you keep talking about the war <laughs> exactly um, but she fortunately like has some uh, disembodied spirits that come down and basically take the form of goblins from mythology don't ask it's very like it, you do it's more complicated than it's worth explaining right now it makes sense in the film but I'm not it'd take me 10 minutes to go through it all I'm not going to tell you but they're goblins like not like American goblins basically just like quirky weird looking but funny mythological creatures that uh, they don't think she can see them but she can and then when they start to realize oh fuck we screwed up when we got here now she can see us what are we going to do like they have this whole weird relationship where first she's terrified of them and then she's angry at them and eventually becomes friends with them, even though they're they're just a huge mess. <laughs> they're like they are a hot mess. They can't do anything right. So they're not very helpful. Mm-hmm. They're not like Totoro, you know, which is pretty much can take out a motherfucker. That's yeah. what I'm saying. See the the sequel to Totoro, where it's like Totoro versus the Yakuza. <laughs> Totoro like, versus the Swamp Monster. I would like to have seen that, but you know, it's it ends with basic. It comes to the conclusion point you kind of expect, which is like there's a point where a character she cares about is sick, and she has to step up and be assertive and do the right thing, and everything kind of re- reflects back on what happened with her dad to some level, and the creatures in question we find out are. Have a re- also in some way are related to the death of her father, uh, and have to decide whether or not to help her, which would be breaking the rules if they did. And it's all very adorable, and it's all very well animated, and it's all very well voice acted. At its worst, I would say, you just keep going. This isn't quite as good as Miyazaki's stuff, but at its best, you go. This is still pretty damn good anime for for kids and for people who like this kind of thing. So th- this is basically you know DreamWorks to uh, Miyazaki's yeah. Disney. It's, it's DreamWorks to Pixar, ah. as as it were. It's still pretty damn good stuff. Pretty damn good stuff. But it's never quite reaching that level of like a master like Miyazaki was capable of, which isn't, which I I feel terrible saying that apparently the the director of this has actually been responsible for a lot of very well-known great stuff like Cowboy Bebop, the movie he was involved in and stuff like that. But, you know, it's, I still really think this is terrific stuff. Um, And this is what we're giving away this week. We have a copy of this to send out to you guys on Blu-ray, which is pretty fucking cool, right? Are we cool, Richard? We are cool. We're cool. We're cool. We're cool. 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 Damn right. And here's how you can win it. Richard, it's your turn. Oh, it's my turn. You you have to uh, follow us on Twitter uh, at at, uh, one of us net. Yes. Um, and you have to uh, send us a tweet with using the hashtag hashtag Momo Giveaway. Yes. And you have to answer a question. And the question this week is: If you had helpful household imps, what is the one thing you would absolutely get them to do around the house for you? Blowjobs are not accepted. As yeah, blowjobs, blow <laughs> sack shaving, nothing obscene, please. Yeah, we're looking for nothing involving please. your genitals. I know. I theirs. know it's your first instinct. <laughs> but no. Uh, this is a family film, if not a family show. Uh, so yeah, if you had house imps, 
uh, what's the one thing you would get them to do for you around the house? Yeah. Uh, so that's hashtag Momo giveaway. And yeah, again, tweet us and follow us at uh, at one of us net. And uh, hey, I got to do that all by myself. You I feel did. A bit proud. That was you're getting really good at this. You all growed up. <laughs> yeah, like talking to the guy who's like won, old Yella. Talking to the guy who's won best journalist in Austin three times. I'm oh, like, oh, oh, you're almost good. <laughs> uh, scarcely competent. <laughs> um, I let me finish by saying thank you guys for listening. Of course, as usual, we urge you guys to be a subscriber to oneofus.net. There's a lot of places on the site you can see on the sidebar and various other places you can do that. And, and there's all sorts of advantages to that, not the least of which is the uh, subscriber only commentaries that we been putting up lately we put up uh, uh, several new ones for halloween including jeepers creepers nightmare on elm street and uh night of the living dead with more to come including eventually the lost boys yeah <laughs> once we we'll get, get your there. wonderful wife to we'll have get there we'll do it don't life. worry it'll happen um uh, as well, when you go on the page for this, you'll see a bunch of images of all the movies that we talked about with the time codes. If you click on those images, it'll bring you to the Amazon.com page, where if you buy those movies through those links, we actually do get a small kickback from those. That does, in fact, add up to continuing to support the site, as, of course, does the subscriber, but even more so uh, the subscriber, not the Amazon part. And if you start from an Amazon link from any one of those links and then continue on Amazon from there to buy anything else, we get a kickback out of whatever that else that – you get. I don't know if it's a bug in the system or what's going on, but there you go. Don't tell them. We we still get a we still get a kickback that way as long as you start from our link. So really, buy anything you buy from Amazon by going to a digital noise page first. We really hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. We'll be back next week with uh, me and Brian covering a whole bunch of new titles. Richard's taking the week off as well deserved. Hey, <laughs> you bastard! Yep. <laughs> yeah, but you'll be a well the week after. So hush. That's true. <laughs> when is it coming? Huh? <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, as we always say, or usually Brian, because I never get it right. Uh, no release. No releases. T already fucked it up. Yep. No releases too big. No releases too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review most of them. Bye!